Minnesota. With me is Greg Stilson with Humanware, and we have uh, plenty to talk about with the new Braille Touch. And let's uh, say hello to Greg. Hey, Greg. Hey, Larry. Thanks for having me on again. It's great to be on ACB Radio. Yep, great to have you always. Excellent. So what do we got so, with this uh, new uh, device that's just been released? Yeah, well, actually, it, the timing is good. We uh, literally last week uh, started shipping our first Braille Note Touch unit. So the Braille Note Touch is, um, for, for those of you who don't or haven't heard about it, it's uh, it's really what, what I'm calling the, the next class of what people traditionally call the note taker. Um, the, the Braille Note Touch is a... A, a Google certified Braille tablet, and a lot of people ask me, "Well, what does Google certified mean? What is what is that?" The, the big deal here is that the Braille Note Touch is the first accessibility device that's ever been certified by Google, and what that means is that the users of the Braille Note Touch can access all the same applications that are available to any tablet on the Google Play Store. So when when I say Google certified, Google has something like twenty five thousand automated tests that a manufacturer has to pass to allow their device to be on the Google Play Store. And what that means is that you, Larry, could buy a Braille Note Touch tomorrow and go to the Google Play Store and download any of the one point whatever million applications that are on there. And that's really where this device really sets itself apart from any assistive technology tool that's been out there today, or up to today, is that... um, you're able to use your traditional note taker commands, your your Braille note functions, your your you, all the efficiency things that the Braille note has done for years, and and that the Braille note comes with its own apps, you know things like keyword, keymail, that have been all souped up for the 21st century, um, and you use a lot of the same uh, efficiency things like first letter navigation in in our apps or in third party apps. But if you do want to download an accessible app from the google play store you can do that because the device is google certified and that's really where our goal with this product is to bring together the best of both worlds the mainstream and assistive technology and sort of what kind of brought us to the thinking about this was that myself i'm a blind individual I, i use touch screens and things like that all the time but one of the things that we noticed was that when blind people are using their their phones or their their tablets and things like that the the devices are designed to be accessible for everyone and what that means is that i can physically touch an item on the screen and it will read to me what it is they're meant to be efficient by sighted people so uh, that's a very clean dis- distinction here we have techniques with with uh, the screen readers and things that come on these mainstream devices but they're really meant to be efficient by the sighted population they're meant to be accessible by blind people and so what we wanted to do is design a product that was both accessible and efficient for the the blind population and so that's really where this device gives you a touch screen if you want to use it otherwise it has a physical keyboard and you can do all of the same uh, braille commands and, and accessibility efficiency tools that you've used for many, many years, like first letter navigation or the, the shortcut keys and things like that. Um, but you can do an, uh, you can use them on the touchscreen itself. So we developed the technology actually to be able to type Braille naturally um, on the glass of the Braille Note Touch. So it 
physically looks like uh, your typical Braille note, but where you would typically have keys behind the Braille display. Um, and that's a, a key component here is that it is an all-in-one device, so you don't have to mess with two separate devices or Bluetooth pairings of devices to tablets and things like that. It's all in one device, and right behind the Braille display is a glass surface that you can type Braille on, or you can use your traditional swipe and double tap um, gestures that that you're familiar with with um, tablets and smartphones and things like that. So um, touch Braille is really the most efficient way that a blind person has ever had to interact with a touch screen. So um, and as I said, we, we, we designed all of the Keysoft apps from the ground up. Uh, so things like our word processor, which now operates strictly in a Microsoft Word format. So you don't have to do any kind of conversion of Braille files to Word anymore. Um, you're always just writing perfect contracted Braille or uncontracted Braille in a Microsoft Word document. So you're able to do a lot of the uh, really powerful formatting stuff there too. So um, like I said, we really wanted to kind of bring together this marriage of mainstream and assistive technology into one device and that device ended up being the braille note touch great that's really sounds exciting does this device uh have uh speech capability as well as the braille display it does yep so you can use speech output um you can turn the speech output off one of the really the nice benefits of touch braille which is the typing on the glass is that you don't ever hear the physical clicking of keys. So you can turn your speech off, just have the Braille running, and you can be typing your notes in your classroom or in your meeting or writing a paper or whatever, and it's totally silent. And that's really what's really awesome is that sighted people, you know, sighted classmates or colleagues can write with a pencil and paper completely silently. Well, we now as blind people have the ability to not really stand out in the middle of a classroom anymore and, and do the click clack of keys and stuff like that. But as I said, the, the Braille Note Touch does come with a carrying case with a keyboard attached to it. And you can flip that down right on top of the screen and use it just like your traditional Braille Note Taker that you've used for the past, you know, 16 years. Oh, wonderful. And I'm assuming that uh, with all the previous, uh, software that you've had on the previous devices uh, you can do uh, streaming with this as well yeah 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 and it's it's even more than that now now you can do streaming but i mean i i can download so many different apps for streaming so for example i can download podcast apps i could download um you know we've we've got youtube on the device so if you want to just quick watch a youtube video you can do that um every week we're doing um a snapshot tutorial where we're releasing uh, basically a five-minute video of some of the really cool things you can do with the Braille Note Touch. Like this week, we just did one on showing just how easy it is to access YouTube. You don't have to, you know, one of the things I find myself doing on my phone all the time is swiping right about a thousand times until I find what I'm looking for. And uh, the nice thing with the Braille Note Touch is that you can type the first letter of on on YouTube. For example, if I if I'm looking for the search box and I have no idea where the search box is located on the screen, rather than running my finger all over the screen or swiping right a hundred times, I can just type S and it'll jump straight to search. Oh, that definitely will save some time. <laughs> yeah, yep. especially with apps that you're not familiar with. If you if you just know kind of what you're looking for and you say, okay, well, somewhere on the screen's got to be a search button or a done button or a send button, you can you can type the first letter and jump right there. Oh, great. So I guess everybody will really be looking forward to seeing this device. You'll be featuring it at the convention, right? Absolutely. Yep, yep. So it will, it'll be, we'll have uh, some Braille Note touches there. You'll be able to try out Touch Braille and 
just see how natural it is. We've got a lot of positive feedback uh, on Touch Braille. Um, basically, when you type Touch Braille, you lay 10 fingers on the screen, you get a quick vibration from the device, and then you just start typing as if there were really keys there. And what's really cool about Touch Braille is that it follows your fingers. You don't need to hit keys, virtual keys, anywhere on the screen. You just type naturally where you believe the Braille key should be, and uh, it'll it'll follow your fingers. So it not only, you know, I identifies your fingers but identifies which fingers they are and that's what's really remarkable about touch braille we uh this is patent pending technology that we uh we developed from the ground up so you'll be able to play with that um we'll have some really cool apps uh on the device that you'll be able to see um it does have an hdmi port so that if there is we, we do have anybody with vision we can plug into a large monitor and you can just see what's going on on the screen as well with regard to the other devices You'll see a pattern. One of the things I want to talk about is for our low vision users. Um, the product's called the Prodigy Connect. And you'll see sort of a pattern here because one of the things that we're starting to do is really try to, as I said, marry the best of both worlds. And that's really what I think we've done with the Prodigy Connect as well is the Prodigy Connect has the Prodigy software inside of it. And it's basically it's a, a tablet that sits into a stand and allows you to use it as a, a, a low vision magnifier, so a portable CCTV. But if you want to, you know, leave the Prodigy application, which allows you to put a piece of paper underneath it, you can magnify it in live mode in real time to read what you're looking at, or you can use the Prodigy's embedded optical character recognition, so I can hit the scan and read button, and it just starts reading to you, which is really cool there. But when I'm done with it, and let's say I want to go take the Prodigy um, uh, stuff that I read and move it to Dropbox, or if you sent me an email, Larry, and I want to read the email, I can actually leave the Prodigy software, open up an email, and magnify that and actually see it. So it's really this best of both worlds. We're taking the efficiency of reading in a low-vision magnifier that's designed for low-vision people um, combined with the openness of a, a, an Android tablet. So this is really, uh, you know, an, an Android, I think it's a 12-inch tablet that you're using. So um, it's, it's sort of this combination of the two technologies, and I think that that's really what our users of today are expecting, is that we don't want a device that's just doing one thing. We want something that is easy for me to use that does a whole bunch of things. And so that's really where... Uh, where I think HumanWare, you're going to start seeing a lot of our focus being put. You can contact uh, HumanWare at www.humanware.com. Um, you can contact our customer service at info at humanware.com or our, customer, or our tech support at support at humanware.com. And, of course, our phone number is 800-722-3393. Excellent. And thank you for being a Ruby sponsor for the 2016 ACB convention. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. This is Larry Turnbull with ACB Radio. It's an amazing world. In an instant, you can shop for a trombone, check on weather, and meet new friends. That is, if you can access the Internet. NVDA is a free screen reader that helps people who are blind or visually impaired get online. The American Foundation for the Blind tells you how with Learn NVDA. Free video lessons that teach technology for work and play. Launch your tech adventure. Learn more at www.afb.org slash learn NBDA. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Bishop, and I have the honor to interview one of our Emerald sponsors, Microsoft Corporation. 
Jenny Lay-Fleury is the Chief Accessibility Officer for Microsoft, and she joins us right here on ACB Radio. Hello, Jenny. Hi there. Welcome to ACB Radio, and wow, there's been quite a bit of uh, stuff going on at Microsoft, and we wanted to give you an opportunity to come here and tell us all about it. So what's going on? Game on. Uh, well, you know, thank you for the opportunity. Um, we're really excited. Uh, it's going to be a pretty amazing conference uh, from the, the run-up. Um, if I give you the quick sort of uh, update on Microsoft, and, and I'm probably new to most of your listeners as well, so maybe if I can uh, indulge for a second and give a, a little bit of an introduction. Um, I've been at Microsoft 11 years. Uh, I'm not from the States. I'm from the little small country across the pond over in the UK, but I've actually been living over here for coming up 10 years. Um, And I've been working on accessibility internally for some time. Uh, I chair the employee resource group at Microsoft, uh, DEF myself. And um, over the years, that that interest and passion really just honestly grew. So I came out of industry and moved full-time into accessibility about six years ago. Uh, And then in January, I became the chief accessibility officer, which is a very humbling and fancy title. and basically what it means is is really as, as Rob Sinclair moves off uh, to do another adventure in, in Microsoft, he's working on some consulting and sales um, functions for the company around accessibility. Uh, I've had the opportunity to come in and really build uh, a new team um, and really start to push what was already in motion, but really start to push some real buzz around accessibility and being humble to our past and the good and bad of our products really start to move those forward uh, and build the culture where that becomes, you know, kind of sustainable, durable, part of how we live, breathe, and think. Um, so that's been really what I've been been getting on with, um, and I'm six months in. Wow. Has it, uh, has it gone by fast? Ha! <laughs> uh, a lot faster than I thought. Yeah. It's, yeah. I, yeah. it's like a rocket, I, I, isn't it? Yeah, and and (laughs) drinking from that fire hose, I would say, in in the first few months, uh, I there were a lot of emails. I got a lot of emails, and all of them just amazing. I just couldn't keep up with it, to be honest with you, in the beginning, because I think people are so righteously and dang passionate about the space and uh, you know wanted me to to really appreciate the opportunities for innovation for hiring for talent and also you know where we're good and bad in the products and just uh you know, really curious a lot of curiosity on what's going on with the products and um what's coming up absolutely well speaking about hiring uh you you guys have really started to do some really great things around inclusive hiring. You want to talk about that? Yes. It's a massive passion of mine. um, I'm kind of on borderline nerd level when it comes to employment statistics because I think they're so galling uh, when you have an unemployment rate that's double that for people with disabilities versus not. Um, you know, as, as working in a, a private company, that's a talent pool that people aren't tapping into. Um, and we know that there's some amazing talent out there. Um, and, you know, I've been lucky enough to have some of them join my team. Um, you know, people like Ann Taylor came last year from the NFB. Um, just a lot of just amazing people. So I think it's, it's an, an area of just 
ridiculous opportunity for Microsoft and also every other company in the industry. Uh, we've been doing some specific things, I think, with autism. We've had to ring fence that and approach that one separately due to the nature of autism. Um, and we're, we're pushing very hard on, on hiring people with autism into the company in the right way and supported in the right way. But also generally all disabilities and quite honestly, uh, developers who have experience, knowledge, whether they're a parent advocate or a person with blindness or visual impairment are gold dust to us, just gold dust. Uh, so we try to put everything on a website um, and put all those best practices up there. So if you search on inclusive hiring Microsoft, you will actually pull up our website. And I think we have 50 open roles now with accessibility in the JD. Uh, just talks to some of the momentum happening at Microsoft, I think. That's awesome. Well, the product mm -hmm. groups have been really, really busy on the Windows side and on the Office side. you want to talk about that? Yeah, I think, you know, again, a lot of this work has been something that we've been moving on and really just taping, taking a lot of the feedback from people in the community, which was good and was bad. I mean, it was very, uh, it was a very humbling experience to just face the realism of what our products can or weren't enabling um, if I look back a year ago um, and so we've been learning a lot from that and I think we you know we want to be again humble to the journey ahead but a massive amount of traction is moving forward and I think the key thing is that we're really goaling to be very transparent with those roadmaps so actually in February we published the full year roadmap for Windows and the full year roadmap for Office and specifically Office 365, which is where all of our efforts are going uh, forward, the perpetual license, the cloud, uh, which I know is, is scary for some, but it is just a great opportunity for a technology company to be more nimble and quick. Um, with features and get them out to market. Um, and so each month, Office is releasing new features onto Office 365, and Windows is working incredibly hard on Narrator. Um, that's going to take a while. And, you know, we'll see some updates in the anniversary release, which is coming up this summer of Windows. Um, and uh, if you've played with it, you'll see the performance is significantly better. Uh, some of the comments from our internal blind uh, community is, is like, wow, I can't even keep up with it now, uh, which it definitely wasn't the case six months ago. So it's incremental improvements that will be rolling out over the coming months. And a, a big wave of releases coming just a few short weeks after your conference. Yeah, and not only that, but we're also seeing some work done on the developer side of tools to yep. uh, to really make uh, developers, uh, you know, people who want to get into computer science and MIS fields, uh, you know, be able to do that and, and really get engaged with Microsoft. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you want to make it hard to make things inaccessible. I mean, that's really the goal. You've got to make it hard to make an inaccessible app. And that's not how it's been today. There's so much effort that goes into rendering things accessible. And yet the tooling, whether that's Edge and F12 developer tools um, or, you know, looking at website automation and, and accessibility, there's so much that we can do long term to really drive and, and flick that bit. And in the meantime, really, the guidance and um, and making sure that the education is about 3,000 hours of videos now uh, on the office side and a lot coming from the Edge team um, on what's coming through that sort of developer pipeline and product pipeline so that people can really get, get hold of what's going on. And I think the one piece of feedback that I have had is that you know, there has been this increased wave 
of uh, blogs and videos and articles coming out on accessibility from Microsoft, which is totally right and, and connected to our mission. I mean, our mission is to empower people and organizations, and the company is really grokking to that. Um, but you know, people were getting, where do I find it? Where do I find it? So if you, if you are curious to get up to date with anything and everything going on, we are making sure that everything we post actually gets either um, hosted from our accessibility blog or is cross-posted. Um, and that's uh, blogs.msdn.microsoft.com, WAC Accessibility, if you want to go and have a gander. Um, and you know, just bookmark that site because that's where we'll be posting everything going forward. Absolutely. And you guys are making quite a presence at our convention this year. You want to talk about that a bit? <laughs> yeah, I'm I am well firstly I have to humbly apologize. I will not be there. Um I'm getting married and apparently uh my my other half wasn't too comfortable with me moving that to your conference. Um <laughs> so you know, forgive me for not being there. But yes, Clint, I'm excited that Clint Covington will be coming. Clint is a principal in office. We now have uh, leaders uh, like Clint, although none are as awesome as Clint, across all of the three engineering teams, as well as uh, on the hiring side, innovation side. We have a, a, you know, it's not just me, there is a really big team here at Microsoft. Um, but Clint has been working alongside me and many others on the partnership with ACB, um, which we see as just. It's a beautiful thing, Jeff, and I'm not just saying that to butter you up. It, it really, really is. It's turned into a, a valuable partnership between Microsoft and ACB where you give us really good technical level feedback. Um, you help us prioritize the bugs and features. You've helped us even with conversations where we've stopped ship. Um, and you, on the basis of your feedback, you're impacting the the product roadmap. Um, and so we just, we're really we're really excited to come and talk about that. Um, and Clint will be on stage doing that, and also talking about the you, just really what's coming through uh, with ACB starting to use more of the Windows uh, and the um, Office platform products um, in coming months, and how we're going to use that as another learning opportunity and uh, take that that feedback back into engineering. So yes, Clint will do an awesome job he doesn't have a british accent um but he is a local um to where the conference <laughs> is. So he'll he'll he's looking forward to it oh we're really looking forward to it too and we are very honored by the partnership that, that uh, we have developed together and uh, we're very thankful for you uh, working with us and and we think it's uh, just a great thing going forward well jenny thank you so much for for coming to acb radio and talking with all of us and you know game on right <laughs> yes, yes, sorry. I, I I think I started with that. Let's end with that. Game on. Thank you, Jenny. Take care. Does your tie match your shirt for your date tonight? Are you dying to know what's in the picture one of your friends sent you? What are the heating instructions for your dinner tonight? Give the Bespecular app a try. Bespecular is an awesome new app on iOS and Android specifically developed for the visually impaired and deafblind. The Bespecular app is a fun, quick, and easy way to get answers to your everyday situations. Download the Bespecular app on the App Store or Play Store today. Want an awesome prize? Download the Bespecular app and come on over to Booth 38 to see if you want a prize. Here is the schedule for Wednesday, July 6th. In the Nicolet Ballroom, beginning at 8 a.m., Entertainment, Rebecca Cragney's Piano, Minneapolis, Minnesota. 8.30 a.m., Invocation, Father Ronald Johnson, Nursing Home Chaplain, 
Arden Hills, Minnesota. Pledge of Allegiance, JPMC, ACB Leadership Fellows, Miguel Mike Palomar, El Paso, Texas. Sandra Spalletta, Rockville, Maryland. Mika White, Federal Way, Washington, and Sheila Young, Orlando, Florida. 8.35 a.m. ACB Business, ACB Sponsor Recognitions, Marjorie Beeman, Advertising and Sponsorship Coordinator, Austin, Texas. Emerald Sponsor, Presentation, Sprint. Kelly Egan, Blindness and Low Vision Outreach Specialist, Denver, Colorado. Ruby Sponsor Presentation, Tom Wolkowski, Vice President, Comcast Accessibility, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Constitution and Bylaws, John Huffman, Chair, Indianapolis, Indiana. Resolutions, Mark Reichert, Chair, Arlington, Virginia. Presiding Officer, Ray Campbell, ACB Secretary, Glen Ellen, Illinois. 9.15 a.m. from my lips to your ears. 25 years of an NLS narrator, Martha Harmon Pardee, Talking Book Publishers, Inc., Denver, Colorado. Sponsored by Lua, 9.45 a.m., Braille Development and Policy Issues. A panel, Paul Edwards, moderator, President, Braille Revival League. Mark Reichert, American Foundation for the Blind, Washington, D.C., and Braille Authority of North America. Update, Sandra Rakonik, ACB, Banner Representative, Salt Lake City, Utah. 10.15 a.m. break, 10.30 a.m. National Advocacy and Legislative Update. Anthony Tony Stevens, Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs, Alexandria, Virginia, 10.55 a.m., Quiet Cars, Transportation, Regulations, and Updates. Blair Anderson, Deputy Director, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Department of Transportation, Washington, D.C., 11.30 a.m., Executive Director's Report, Eric Bridges, Alexandria, Virginia. 11.55, Announcements. And that concludes the schedule for Wednesday, July 6th. All right. There you have it. Good morning. It's Wednesday. And we'll leave you with the pre-entertainment going on this morning. And Kim's going to get uh, things underway with the general session here in about five minutes. So stay close, and we'll get things underway. It's going to be a fun, information-packed agenda on this morning's general session.
If there are any assistive listening device users in the room, uh, my name is Byron. I will be in the back of the room. Uh, just make yourself known. Again, if you're an ALD user, please make yourself known. Thank you.
morning. Good morning, everyone. everyone. I want to first thank our entertainment for this morning. He substituted in Dan Eberson from Richfield, Minnesota. Thank you so much. Um, And all the best to Rebecca Cragness, who is in guide dog training at the moment. So we wish her well. All right. One second. All right, we're going to be a little unorthodox this morning, and uh, you guys might get a chuckle out of this. Janet Dickelman was most proud of the fact that she has a blind person who is a priest in the area, and he was invited to give our, our invocation this morning. And I have to tell you that he's going to be late because he's on paratransit. <laughs> So, we will still let him give us an invocation at some point this morning, but it isn't at the traditional time, due to paratransit schedule. (laughs) So, I knew you would all understand. (laughs) So, we do, however, have an able and willing group of people here to lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. So if you would all stand, our J.P. Morgan Leadership Fellows, Mike Palomar, Sandy Spoletta, Mika White, and Sheila Young will lead us in the Pledge of Allegiance. You can step forward a little closer. All right. All rise. The Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. You may be seated. You may be seated. (laughs) All right. I am going to recognize Marjorie Beemans. So get your ears adjusted, because sometimes she's so enthusiastic she wakes you up, which is wonderful. So, Marjorie. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. I'm just trying to see that you all are awake. Okay, the first sponsorships I'm going to read this morning are the uh, silver $50 sponsorships. And I'll read those names. We had 57. Marilyn Fifo. Robert Bradley, Marion Hasselrood, Artis Bazin, Virginia DeBlay, uh, Mitch Pomerantz, Donna Pomerantz, Carolyn Burley, Richard Johnson, Michael Alvarez, 
Stephen Robertson, Bonnie Robertson, Adley Moeller, Richard Ruda, Paul Edwards, Judy Jackson. Have to turn the page. We can't get them all on one page today. And we have Bruce Radke, Cynthia Herawaka. I mess them up. Renita uh, Kawama, Leslie Tom, Burl Cauley, Christopher Devin, Donna Browning, Charles Levette, Martin Coons, Eugenia Furs, Jeff Tom, Donna Brown, Patrick Sheehan, Peggy Garrett, Michael Garrett, Peggy Madrid, Olivia Chavez, Larry Turnbull, Jim Jarek, uh, Norma Delkey, Barbara Lombardi, Nikki Colby, Ann Byington, Teddy Joy Rumhill, Gail Crossan, Daryl Eaton, uh, Schmidt Whitaker, must be Catherine Schmidt Whitaker, they, they have it backwards. Uh, Anna Olson, Connie Gill, Chris Bell, JoLynn Bailey Page, Donna Seliger, Chris Prentice, Albert Anderson, Jason Castaway, Patrick Tussing, Debbie Grubb, Mary Ellen Frost, Jay Dowdney, Shai-Yang Su, Darren Fleming. And I must tell you, Darren Fleming called me yesterday, was not able to come because of the death of her husband, John Fleming, and wanted to tell everybody hello and has been listening to us on radio and wanted to donate $50. So I thought that was very nice. Now for our corporate sponsors, our double diamond sponsors, Google, Crown Jewel Sponsor, Band of Pharmaceutical, ACB Banquet, and the Memorial Walk, Emerald Sponsor, we have DQ Systems, Guide Dog Services, and International Culture Exchange Day, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company, your day at the conference, July the 8th. Microsoft Conference Registration, Sprint Conference Volunteer Services, and Afternoon ACB Radio Broadcast, and you'll hear from Sprint today, Uber Audio Visual Services, Verizon Information Desk, and Decade of Dreams Auction. Ruby Sponsors, Adobe Convention Program, Comcast ACB Exhibit Hall, and you hear from them today, Facebook Interpreter Services, Deaf Blind, Humanware ACB Radio General Session Broadcast, Macro Degeneration Foundation for uh, Brenda Dill Memorial Walk, Regal Cinema Kids Explorer Club and the Walk. Then we have the Onyx sponsors, AT&T ACB Cafe, Buell Fund Recreation Zone, Charter Communications Performing Arts Showcase, National Association of Broadcasters, ACB Marketplace. National Industries for the Blind, Scholarship Winners, Reception, and One General Session. VFO Freedom Scientific Optolic Exhibit Hall Guide. Topaz Sponsor, ACB Lines, Scholarship Winner, Travel. Coral Sponsor, Bomb USA. ACB Future Leaders and Outstanding Blind Students, Laney Feingold of Law Offices of Laney Feingold and Linda Dedarian and Megan Ryan 
of Goldstein, Morgan, Dadarian, and Ho, audio described film night. Randolph Shepter Vendors of America sponsored scholarship winners dinner and luncheon. Pearl sponsors Caption Max, ACB Cafe, July the 6th. So look for that in your bag. Discovery Technology, ACB Cafe, July the 5th. Hymns Incorporated, ACB Cafe, July the 3rd. Lighthouse for the Blind, Seattle, High Tech Workshop. Lua, NLS Talking Book Narrator. Maxi Aids, ACB Cafe, July the 4th. And those are our corporate sponsors. Give them a big hand. Thank you. And it's never too late to be an individual sponsor. We'll reading one more day tomorrow. Don't forget. I'll turn the program over to our president. Thank you. Father Ron? Yes. Okay. Just come forward. I am so happy to report that paratransit in Minneapolis isn't quite as slow as paratransit some other places. And it's a pleasure for me to introduce to you Father Ron Johnson. And he might share a little with us about the work he does and his, his own visual impairment. Father Ron, come forward a little farther. Thank you so much. And your name was? I'm Kim Charlson. Kim Charlson. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm the president of ACB. Wow. Do you have a direct line to your higher authority? Well, I don't know. <laughs> can, can you consult for me with him? I'm, I'm not sure. You know, um, I, think he, I think he's uh, taken numbers today. Oh, okay. You know? All right. If, I'll, uh, I'll if, wait. You know, if we could... Yeah, you. I'll you, wait. That's right. That's right. You know, it's uh, you know, it, I just just depends what's on your bingo card. Yeah, that's how the church raises money these days, right? We got lots of bingo. Yeah. Well, so good morning. It's so good to meet with the meet with you, and it's so good to see all of you here. It's such a bright and sunny day after uh, what was kind of a stormy night. I don't know if anybody was outside last night catching raindrops, but it was a beautiful uh, kind of panorama of sort of thunder, lightning, and wind. I don't know. It's kind of a strange deal. Um, yeah, so you want to know a little bit about the work that I do. I work in, um, I work in acute memory care, and uh, I was trained as a chaplain after my ordination, and I really uh, kind of found an interest in seniors since my early days, since my mid-teens. So it's kind of the wisdom of seniors, the wisdom of their stories, um, and uh, just lives well lived. I'm so interested in the journey. So um, that's that's what I, it's what I do. Um, I started a songwriting program a few years ago, um, where we're writing songs about memory, um, kind of about holiday memories, holiday recipes, uh, favorite um, hobbies, uh, work life, family life. So we're. Um, so uh program's called Songs and Smiles. I have an old flyer on a website. There's songs N, as in Nancy, songsnsmiles.com. So if anyone wants to take a look at that, I would be happy to, uh, to correspond with you. Um, my email, my personal email my, and my cell number are on that website. Um, so it would be great to, to connect. And I'm just glad for the work the council's doing. I'm 
Glad that you guys all decided to come to our uh, Twin Cities. Maybe you can help our twins win a few more ball games. You know, we really need some help there. Yeah, so this is good. This is good. They did, they did win last night? Fantastic. Fantastic. So who's going to pour the beer? Maybe it's too early for a beer. I don't know. Anyway. So, so you guys uh, want me to say some, some kind of wise words this morning. So I think I'm going to try and do that. If we can just take a deep breath in and bow our heads and close our eyes. And we'll just take a moment of silence here. God of all empowerment, God of independence and technology, God of navigability, God of bright lights and dark places, God of wisdom. Help us to continue our good work. Help us to share our resources with those who are learning and help us to learn from those who are teaching. Help us to be inspiring to one another and to be inspired by one another as we share our many gifts, as we build that kingdom where you live and reign, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so very much, and God bless your day. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome very much. Uh, What I didn't tell you was I drove the bus. Yes, of course. (laughs) That's why we're so late. Kim Charlson. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you, Father. You're welcome. All right. All right. We are going to hear from a a few of our sponsors this morning, and it's my pleasure to introduce to you from Sprint, Kelly Egan, who is Blind and Low Vision Outreach Specialist for Sprint, home-based from Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Kelly. Hi. How are you? I'm good. There you go. There's the podium. Good morning, all of you. Wow. I have to follow the invocation. (laughs) Bless me. Bless me and bless you. Um, Anyway, thank you very much for the opportunity to share with you today. Um, One of the things I want to do right off the bat is start with a survey, if you don't mind. I need your help. I get a question all the time from all sorts of blind people and my management and senior sprint this and that, and everybody wants to know who who uses what phones. So... You can make a noise, whether it's clap, shout, whatever you want. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask you, how many of you use iPhones? <laughs> wow, I think I have the answer. Um, okay. Number two, how many of you use Android devices? Oops. Okay, and how many of you use flip phones and or feature devices? And how many of you use all three? (laughs) Right. Thank you. I think I have my answer. (laughs) I appreciate um, your support on that. Anyway, today I um, think my uh, theme is going to be differences. 
So I was here last year speaking to you all, and uh, just want to talk to you a little bit about what's changed at Sprint and what's um, changed in terms of how we're approaching the community, etc. So yes, I'm responsible for our outreach and our connection and our um, interaction with the blind and low vision community, making sure we have accessible devices, affordable plans, and wonderful customer service. So to me, one of the most important things is the customer service part of this conversation because the world today has kind of equalized in many ways. One of those is with wireless service and wireless technology and phones and so on and so forth. So the difference between all of us is very little. Um, I don't know if you've seen our recent commercial, but we have a commercial on TV right now that says... Um, gosh, the guy who used to uh, be the spokesperson for Verizon, his name, uh, he, you know, he did the commercial, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Right? <laughs> so we all know that one. And now our commercial is that he has switched to Sprint. And he has. And so he's doing the commercials for Sprint. So, and the, the bottom line of those commercials is there's 1% difference in coverage between Sprint and Verizon. And though the cost is 50% different, and why wouldn't you switch? So it's kind of an interesting um, evolution because, oh gosh, I would say five years ago and even further back, Sprint didn't nearly have the coverage uh, that Verizon had or anything like that. So we've invested lots and lots and lots of billions of dollars in creating towers and becoming more accessible or more having better coverage. So I feel like when people choose Sprint at this point in, in our um, history or current situation, they're going to have excellent, excellent coverage, just like any of the rest of the carriers. So that's kind of the, just where we've changed. We've changed in, in, in our coverage and our ability to share it. And we really want to get it to you and the blind community and me, um, the blind community. We want to get it to us in an affordable way and then have support when we need it. So we all have, we all get stuck sometimes, at least I do. And um, we need help to figure out the next thing we need to do or how do we get from here to there or how do we turn this on or turn that on. And having a customer service organization that's um, designed to support the disability community entirely as only for that. We have provided an 800 number that is for us, for people with disabilities, in order to talk to someone who can help you through your issues you may be having at any given point in time. And I think to me as, um, to me that's probably one of the most important features of Sprint. Um, we're here at the convention. I think we're the only one, not to call anybody out, but Sprint's here. And, um, <laughs> and we uh, would love to talk to you all whenever you have a chance to swing by our booth 52. Uh, we also have some uh, conversations this afternoon at 4.15 and 5.45 in the grant room. And basically, the opportunity would be to come sit down with us and let's have some um, brainstorming and roundtable-type discussion to learn what else Sprint can be doing, learn what else you need, learn what else uh, you'd like to see in the future as, as time goes forward. So what I can tell you is Sprint is very committed to this community. 
um, they hired me, and my job is to really figure out how to best support uh, the entire community. And I want to hear the good news, the bad news. I'll give you my business card, and you can call me anytime. Um, <laughs> well, not anytime, but. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, oh wow, I'm in trouble now. Uh, I've got to go change my phone number. Um, anyway. <laughs> And so anyway, please stop by and see us at Booth 52 and or come to our sessions this afternoon in the Grant Room at 415 or 545. It's a pleasure to be here, and I always have fun with you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we're going to hear from um, one of our Ruby sponsors, Comcast, and uh, we'll hear some new things about what they have been doing with voice guidance. We're not going to hear from Tom Lipkowski, though. He wasn't able to come, but Joel Moffitt, who's Vice President of Communications Accessibility, is here to share with us and bring us greetings from Tom. And um, Joel's a great guy. So um, welcome, Joel, and thank you again to Comcast. Thank you for the introduction, Kim. Good morning, everybody. I am, I am not Tom Litkowski. <laughs> Slightly more hair than Tom, uh, at least at the moment. Uh, that may have changed over my three and a half years at Comcast so far. <laughs> but it, it, it's all for in the name of, of great work uh, for a great team. And uh, I, I really enjoy working from Tom, and he sends his regards, of course. So my name is Joel Moffitt. I'm the Senior Communications Manager and Customer Engagement Lead for the accessibility team at Comcast back in Philadelphia. Um, very honored and pleased to be here. Comcast, as always is very proud to once again be a sponsor of this great conference and convention uh, and really proud and respectful of all the great work that all of you here in the room are doing and of course all of the work that our fellow sponsors are doing uh, in the accessibility space. Um, I think we all really deserve a round of applause for the things that we're all doing to push accessibility forward. To innovate, to create great experiences, and really um, get accessibility on the map across all industries. So what I'd like to do today is talk to you a little bit about some of the things we've been working on, uh, kind of an update for, for those of you who might not have heard it before on really Comcast's uh, approach to accessibility, which is very much a proactive one as opposed to a reactive one. Uh, talk about some of the pillars that kind of hold that approach up and, of course, get into some product updates uh, that are probably what you're most anxious to hear about because those are the things that you're using uh, both in and out of the home. Does that sound pretty good? All right. Uh, any Xfinity customers out there in the audience today? All right. Uh, folks are using our Xfinity X1 entertainment operating system? All right. Using voice guidance? All right. Some applause and a sneeze on that one. That's good. <laughs> God bless you. Uh, so I, I want to talk about all those things. So uh, it's important to note that at Comcast, our team uh, takes a very proactive approach. We sit within the technology and product development group. 
So it's an important distinction that we're not often regulatory, let's say, responding only to FCC complaints and putting Band-Aids on things and not really fixing the root of the problem. Uh, what we do is we are product owners. We're working with our fellow product owners of all the, the nuances of our, of our systems, including X1 and, and web and mobile applications, to take a, a universal design approach where we're designing, of course, for all of us here in the room, people are blind or who have low vision, but also making an impact across the board, creating a better customer experience for everyone. So that's really our, our chief pillar of accessibility is the customer experience. The other two are kind of internal infrastructure and engagement. So how are we engaging our folks internally and building accessibility champions? So we've got a, a relatively small team and we're working to build champions uh, among our developers and designers and engineers um, so they can stand up and be a voice for accessibility themselves. And then, of course, we've got product capabilities, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I want to focus a little bit on the customer experience pillar first because this is where you all come in. This is where ACB comes in and everybody here in the room. Uh, folks from ACB have been incredibly supportive and involved in the process uh, as we like our customers to be uh, from you know, every stage of the design and development process so that we can truly develop with accessibility in mind and engage customers to find out, hey, how are things working for you? And we want to learn that early on in the process of developing something like voice guidance, or, sorry about that, our talking guide on the X1 operating system. We want to involve customers at every stage of the way, and ACB and all of the constituents here are a huge part of that. So whether we're engaging people at roundtables at the Comcast Center to actually get people in front of our product leads and in front of prototypes, or coming out to conferences like this to really hear on the ground what's going on, uh, you are a very important part of that process, and we want to continue to hear from you. Uh, whether we hear from you through our Comcast Accessibility Customer Support Center, which you can reach at 855-270-0379. Uh, you can also reach by, by email at accessibility at comcast.com. And you can get support on the web at xfinity.com slash accessibility. So uh, that's a channel where you can get help and support around uh, voice guidance and video description and any issues you're having with your Xfinity service. And uh, we can help you there. And then you can also escalate issues through there and that will eventually reach our team and we can get that feedback from you. Uh, from the in internal engagement side, we're making sure that we're engaging our developers, designers, engineers by curating accessibility best practices and making sure those are getting built into the day-to-day -day of our developers and designers so that when we're creating web applications, mobile applications, uh, we're developing with accessibility in mind. And I don't have to tell anybody here that there's a very fast-paced uh, media and technology world out there, so keeping up with that is always a challenge. But uh, we've seen great uh, engagement really across our internal businesses. So you, whether it's video entertainment, whether it's uh, our voice services and moving into home security and control and, of course, high-speed data, we've got this pipeline to the home where we're able to really deliver a, a very full-featured, full-fledged customer experience across all those lines of business. So, of course, product capabilities are probably what many of you are interested in. Uh, anybody care about and interested in seeing the advancement of video description? Yeah. All right, I thought that might be the case. We'll talk about that a little bit. I know a lot of you are using voice guidance. So, um, as many of you probably know, voice guidance has been in beta since we released it uh, early in 2015. That's because we're continuing to take that feedback from all of you to make that a fuller and fuller product, which has come along very nicely. We've recently done some significant re-architecture on voice guidance, our talking guide, 
and you're going to see some new um, features for voice guidance uh, coming in the weeks and months ahead later in the year. Uh, things like the ability for notifications to be read out. Uh, notifications would be something like if you found something by browsing the program guide, and it also happens to be available on your DVR on demand, you'll get a notification that says, hey, why don't you restart this from the beginning? You can watch it from the very start. Uh, that kind of notification will soon be read out by voice guidance. That also includes things like if you're an Xfinity voice customer as well, you would get an on-screen notification on X1 that tells you who's calling and where they're calling from. Voice guidance would read that out as well. So as you can see, our, our product mix really kind of uh, converging on X1 and becoming accessible through all of the X1 accessibility features. Uh, another great thing we've got, uh, kind of transitioning into the video description realm here, is anytime you're watching full screen video with X1, you can press the down arrow key on your remote, and up will come uh, kind of what we call a transport bar in the lower third of the screen. It's got playback controls, uh, you know, play, rewind, and pause, but it's also got accessibility uh, toggles. So to turn video description off and on, you would just press the down arrow key twice and then and hit OK. So. Yes, and that's something that's available today, but until now hasn't been read out by voice guidance. And very soon you'll hear voice guidance reading that out, taking many steps out of the process of turning video description on. So as you also know, we've got our voice remote with X1. So X1, you can really think of it as three kind of key voice features. You've got our voice remote where you can talk to X1 and tell it what to do and forget about most of the buttons on your remote. And then, of course, you can go ahead and turn on voice. Yeah. Ghost in the microphone there. Of course, you can turn on voice guidance and get that, that voice guiding you through the interface. And then, of course, across all of our platforms, you can get video descriptions. So those are kind of the three voice features that we think of. So as we think of how we start to use the voice remote to turn things off and on and navigate the system, uh, we can look forward to something like turning video description on with a voice command or even discovering video description content with a voice command. So show me movies with video description. Uh, very soon, uh, in the next couple of months, that'll take you to a landing page that shows you not only what's airing now that has video description, but what movies are available on demand with video description. And then, of course, when you go and search through our library of on-demand content, you'll have an indicator telling you whether video description is present. So enhancing that discoverability of content and availability of content and the ease of turning it off and on. Is that something everybody can look forward to? Excellent. So a uh, couple more things about video description. You know, always looking to build out our library of on-demand content. Uh, last year, you may remember, in December, NBC, the other side of our business, aired uh, The Wiz Live, the live Broadway show. Uh, for the first time, we had live video description, thanks to NBC. Uh, so that was something that benefited not just Comcast customers, Xfinity customers, but really uh, across all of uh, uh, the nation. Uh, anybody who has video description available can turn that on. So that's available on Xfinity On Demand now. And we're pleased to say that in December, uh, ramping up again for the holidays, NBC will be airing Hairspray live. All right, some Hairspray fans in the audience. And you can look forward to enjoying that with video description as well. So that's something we'll look forward to seeing in December. So I just want to thank you all for your time, um, and I, I hope we'll continue to hear feedback from everybody so we can continue to enhance our products. So just thanks for coming along on this journey with us, and don't forget, uh, if you are a customer, you can lean on our Accessibility Customer Support Center, 855-270-0379. 
And uh, if you do happen to be a customer who does not yet have X1, you can call that number uh, to upgrade at a special rate for our customers who are blind or have low vision, or even if the account holder just shares the home with somebody who's blind or has low vision. So feel free to reach out. All right. Thank you all. Joel Moffat from Comcast. Have a great day. Thanks, Joel. Eric, how are you? Safe travels. Thanks. All right. While, uh, excuse me, while uh, John Huffman is getting ready, I have a special announcement. Um, We have two members who are here today, and they're in the audience in the Arizona delegation. Twenty years ago, Lisa Espinoza and Ron Brooks, who were then members of the California delegation, skipped our convention to get married. Today, they are here celebrating their 20th anniversary with us. Congratulations, Ron and Lisa. Lisa, don't be too mad at him. This is quite a nice little gesture. Congratulations to both of you and a wonderful family that you have over the last 20 years. All the best. All right, John, you get to do Constitution and bylaws after that. How's that sound? John, John needs a mic or the secretary's <laughs> mic. There he is. It's coming. Here it comes. Okay, I think we're up. Well, good morning, ACB. <laughs> we have uh, time for at least one and hopefully two uh, first readings of proposed constitution and bylaw amendments. That will finish the first readings. And then at the convenience of the body tomorrow or Friday, um, these proposals will come back as second readings, at which time uh, they can be discussed, debated, and voted on. Resuming where I left off yesterday, uh, Proposal 2016-3 would amend Bylaw 7, Credentials, sections B and C, by changing the word session wherever it occurs to the word meeting. Current language is as follows. Bylaw 7, credentials, section B. If at the opening of the annual conference and convention, an affiliate is unable to announce its official delegate alternate delegates in the order of their precedence and its representative who will serve on the nominating committee, it shall provide this information in writing to the credentials committee prior to any vote by the affiliate at the annual conference and convention. Section C then reads, uh, uh, I'm sorry, section C credentials, During the second session of each annual conference and convention, it shall 
it, it meaning the Credentials Committee, shall make a report uh, which shall contain the identity of each affiliate organization's official delegate, alternate delegates in the order of precedence, and the uh, representative uh, and the affiliate's representative, I'm sorry, uh, who shall serve on the nominating committee as determined from either the roll call of affiliates conducted at the first session or from the written submissions made to the, to the credentials committee by each affiliate organization. Now, uh, the only thing that is going to change in, in the two sections that I just read is the word session being replaced by the word meeting. Um, however, um, if it would be helpful to the body, I'm prepared to read the, the, the two sections as they would, as they would be if, if amended. <laughs> uh, once again, I'm encouraged to make it quick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the final uh, proposal uh, to, amend the to amend the Constitution and bylaws is identified as Proposal 2016-4. And it would amend the third sentence of Bylaw 6, uh, Committees, uh, Section D, Constitution and Bylaws. Yes, I got these out of order. Uh, by replacing the word session with the word meeting. Um, section D, Constitution and Bylaws, um, the sentence currently reads, all proposed amendments to the, con all proposed amendments to the Constitution and or bylaws must be submitted in writing to the Constitution and Bylaws Committee on or before the end of the first day following the day of the roll call session of the conference and convention. And once again, um, if you can imagine the same word, the same se sentence appearing there with the m word meeting replacing the word uh, session, uh, then that's, that's what we have. And if your sentiment is still uh, not to re read the whole thing again, I am prepared to oblige. <laughs> Thank you, my... Thank you, my friend. <laughs> this concludes the first reading of proposed constitution and bylaw changes that we uh, have received. Um, before I relinquish the mic, you have to, you have to abide me for a minute, another minute or so here. First, I would like to take a moment of personal privilege to recognize the other members of my committee. Uh, they are Jay Bader from Florida. Frank Cuda from the state of Washington. Janelle Edwards from Missouri. I was once told that that is supposed to be said Missouri. <laughs> an, a, new, a new addition to the conference and uh, to the uh, Constitution and Bylaws Committee this year, and a welcome one, is Betsy Grinovich from Georgia. Richard Johnson from Wisconsin. Yeah. 
John McCann, and the note I have here says Virginia, but it's my understanding that he is now a proud resident of Arizona. And final committee member, Chris Prentice from Texas. And our able um, officer liaison from the board of directors is Mitch Pomerantz from the state of California. And our staff liaison, Eric Bridges, from somewhere around Beltway, I believe. <laughs> and, I would, and I would also like to um, offer a brief apology to committee members themselves because uh, I thought I had a plan in place to let you know that uh, we would not be meeting yesterday afternoon. So if anybody showed up in a designated room and waited for a Constitution and Bylaws Committee meeting to uh, break out and it didn't, I apologize for my misuse of your time. <laughs> That's all I have for the present, so thank you all. Thank you, John. And we will be hearing a little bit from Mark Reichert later this morning. So he is here and ready for a resolution, and we'll have that later in the morning. Um, I'd like to take just a couple minutes and recognize Rick Morin, who is our lead AV person for the convention, for the, all of the meeting rooms and his ABLE team, and I'll let him recognize them, but he wants to give you some pointers on how these newfangled microphones work, because they're not your mom and pop's microphones anymore. So, Rick, if you could share some of the tips, I think it will help people as they seek the floor um, throughout the rest of the conference. Thank sure. you. Sure, Kim. Thank you. Be happy to. Good morning, everybody. Um, just, uh, I need to explain to you how uh, I find out which microphone to bring up. I, I know there's been a lot of frustration about y'all feeling that the mics were dead yesterday and the day before. Um, I'm low vision, so just bear that in mind. When someone approaches a microphone, please get very, very close to the microphone and speak into the microphone a light flashes on the board when I see that there's someone speaking into the microphone, and then I bring it up. Uh, the reason why I don't keep all the mics active all the time is because people who use assistive listening devices pick up all that ambient noise of the, of, of the room when the mics are open, and it makes it impossible for people with assistive listening devices to take advantage of um, of, of what's going on in the room. So in the spirit of inclusiveness, we keep the mics down deliberately. Uh, it also sounds better on ACB radio. So again, when you approach a mic and, and you seek the floor, either tap on the mic um, or speak into it very, very closely, please, because these mics are, are not that sensitive. You, can't, you cannot sit back three inches from the mic. You need to be right on top of the mic. I will see a light flash on the board, and within a second or two, you should start hearing yourself uh, come out of the speakers, okay? So if you could bear with me on that, I'd very much appreciate it. Thank you. We had um, a question, I think, of how many mics, and if you could explain the configuration really quickly, that might also help folks. Um, whoa. <laughs> uh, one of the things, by the way, the reason why we get feedback every now and then, uh, 
is not that I'm bringing stuff op- uh, up. The acoustics in this room are very difficult. It's a very, it's a very shallow room. Um, when, when people are speaking away from the mic, there tends to be har- harmonic distortion, which comes back and, and creates the feedback. So when the feedback occurs, it's almost always a case where someone is sitting back from the mic. So please talk directly into the mic. In terms of this room, we have 16 microphones in this room. We've got three on the stage. We've got another, um, another 13 on the floor. We've got the piano mic'd. So we've got a 16-channel board here. Um, so And any one of 16 channels could be active at one time. Again, we try to keep only one or two channels open at a time. That way we keep the, the, the sound as clean as we can for the assistive listening devices and ACB radio. If anybody has any questions, come on and see me between break. I'd be happy to show you the, show you the gear. Uh, it's some really cool stuff. We've been investing in the equipment. I hope uh, you all have been finding that in the meeting rooms uh, it's, it's been a little bit better than it's been in the past, and we hope that it's only going to get better from here. Thank you. Thank you, Rick and Byron, um, who's been helping Rick with mics and AD, ADLs. I did it now. ALDs. Uh, <laughs> um, it's a lot of work just to get yourself around this hotel, let alone getting to every room at every change of meeting to make sure everything is working. So Rick, Byron, everyone involved, we appreciate your support. And Kim, Kim, can I plug the Yin Yang show on ACB radio? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. The ACB radio folks, welcome. And Debbie Hazelton, Larry Turnbull over there in the corner as well. And we're we're recording more sessions this year. They're on rebroadcast, and the, a lot of programming in the Mirage Room is streamed live as well. So we've expanded coverage, and there'll be more for you to hear. If you miss something and you couldn't get there because there were too many things all at one time, remember ACB Radio has the coverage, and you can hear it later. It'll be available. All right. It's time for me to relinquish the podium to our presiding officer of the day. And I want to welcome Mr. Ray Campbell, ACB secretary from Glen Ellen, Illinois. Yeah. Ray. Right behind, right over your left. Okay. By way of video description, I'm now raising the mic up a little bit. Good morning, ACB. And, and good morning, ACB radio. You know, one of my... Um, one of my goals over the last year was to uh, enhance or increase, I should say, my ACB radio listening, and I have certainly done that. And, folks, there is some great programming out there on ACB radio. You really need to, yes. And I think, and that applause is for all the dedicated people from the management team to the broadcasters and everybody who puts on the uh, great content. Uh, Larry will be happy to hear that my new favorite show now is Handy Around the House. <laughs> and it actually inspired me to try to fix a carpet reducer. Uh, then I broke the top piece off and had to call my handyman repair place to come and do it for me. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was uh, my story. Well, we're a little bit behind schedule, so... Um, we can take that. What is your point of information? Okay. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, the point of information is, uh, from what was said, do I understand that if a mic is live in one of the rooms, such as a wireless mic or something, that the, uh, uh, the team can hear what is going on in that room? What? In other words, if... 
if, say a meeting has ended, but and there are people still in the room and the mics are live, can what is being said in the room still be heard by the uh, audio team? Yeah. The assistant listening folks. I mean, certainly if a mic's open, the assistant listening folks that are on that frequency are going to hear it, certainly. But so be careful what you say, Adam. Uh, yeah, uh, right. Yes. Right. Let me just uh, let me explain. Let's not every, belabor this, guys. Every meeting room has got a, got a unique frequency where we are not monitoring those frequencies. So it, the, um, the speakers are only active in that room. And, yeah, if the mic's open, it'll definitely pick up what's in the room. But, but, the, but things are not being recorded or anything like that. Right. Ask George W. Bush about open microphones. <laughs> Naperville, Illinois, a few years ago. Anyway, we're a little behind schedule, so I'm not going to belabor that any longer. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we who are blind or visually impaired, are, uh, we're, we're a pretty uh, uh, good bunch of folks because we invite some wonderful people into our lives to read to us. And they can come into our lives at any time. Maybe it's out on the patio, sipping a cold beverage, in my case, a cold Miller Light. Maybe it is in the kitchen preparing breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Or maybe it's in the, in, at night when we're lying in bed trying to get to sleep. I'm talking about, of course, our talking book narrators. Yeah, let's give them a round, all of them a round of applause. This morning, it gives me great pleasure to bring before you uh, a lady who has spent 25 years with talking book publishers in Denver, Colorado, as a talking book narrator. Yeah. And... Um, also um, does uh, acting and voiceover work. I had this big, long bio, but I'm not going to use it. But I am going to take a, about 45 seconds of personal privilege. The last time I saw this lady, Martha Harmon Pardee, was a very special weekend in 2011. It was the Illinois Council of the Blind State Convention in Peoria, Illinois. You might say, well, it's a state convention. What was so special about that? The... Convention was the time we celebrated the 25th wedding anniversary of two of Illinois' favorite people, Dick and Alice Bledsoe. It was unfortunately also five months before Dick's untimely passing. Dick, we know you're listening. Alice, I hope you're listening. Let's all give a big ACB welcome to this year's Talking Book narrator, Martha Harmon Party! Okay. All right. This is not Martha Harmon Pardee, so don't get too excited yet. Um, I have to recognize Janet Dickelman, who is at a mic, to make an important announcement about the Twins tickets and those folks who couldn't go to the game last night. Janet? Could somebody? Oh, there, there we go. go. Thank you very much. Sorry about that interruption for our talking book narrator. I'll be done in just a moment. For those of you who purchased tickets yesterday for the Twins game, and would like to exchange those tickets to go to today's game, you're welcome to go to registration and, and, and pick up your ticket. You would have to go to the Twins on your own. There won't be transportation. This is the only game we could exchange it for. Otherwise, there are no refunds because the game was in a rain delay, so we're not going to be able to refund money. If you purchased a ticket for the game and would like to go, just go to registration and stop by, and you can pick up your ticket for last night's game and exchange it for a game for today. Thank you very much. 
Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm a little intimidated by that welcome that you gave when he said my name. Now I have to live up to that. I'm, I'm, I feel all sorts of pressure. Um, I am so excited and delighted and honored to be here. Um, this is far and away the best part of my job, always has been, when I get to actually... <laughs> I'm let out of the little black box that I sit in all day <laughs> um, and, and get to talk to um, the wonderful folks that um, use the NLS system. Um, I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I, I just want to say just the nature of the beast of what we do, pretty much I'd say 98% of my feedback at work consistently is negative. You did this wrong. We heard your stomach. We heard that, you know, da, 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 da. <laughs> so it can get kind of discouraging and depressing. And then every once in a while, you know, I'll get an email or a, an actual letter or get to go to one of these conferences and, and, um, and, and feel a little bit like Sally Field. They like me. <laughs> and I want to say to my bosses... <laughs> Oh, thank you. No, but I want to, like, tape it and show it to my bosses. See, they like me. I'm a good person. Um, anyway, um, before I go any further, I would like you all to help me, indulge me in um, a, a quick little message. Um, I don't know if any of you know Donna Russell Grauman. She uh, was a contributing author to Behind Our Eyes, A Second Look, and she um, was known for having her guide pony, guide miniature horse, and she's just a wonderful woman. And um, if you enjoy um, my narration of the J.D. Robb books, the dot, 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 in depth, yeah, yeah, yep. Well, I got to tell you, they are far and away some of my favorite books to narrate. And um, for a while, they were being diverted away from me for whatever reason, and Donna was not having that. And she, um, she petitioned, and she got other people to write in, and she made it so that now they're coming back to me again so I can hang out with Rourke and Peabody and yay. I mean, they're like members of my family and they took them away from me. Um, anyway, Donna had made plans to be here. She'd gotten her tickets and then a lousy infection roared up and decided to change her plans for her. So um, she's listening or she said she would be and if she's not, she's going to feel really bad. Um, so can we all just do a quick Get well, Donna, on three. One, two, three. Get well, Donna. Yay, thank you. Okay. All right, Donna, you hear that? They all said it, so you have to do it. Um, uh, anyway, so, yeah, it has been not quite 25 years, but um, pretty close to it since I started this um, wonderful job. Um, a lot has changed in a lot of ways over that time, as, as I'm sure you've experienced the way that you receive the information. Um, it's a lot different how we record the information. When I started, it was those big, fat, reel-to-reel studers. Yeah, and uh, that was fun. And uh, I actually started as a monitor, which is what we call our sort of sound engineers. They're the person that's working with us that hopefully says you know, you said that wrong, or I heard your stomach, so that I don't then later hear it <laughs> officially. Um, 
Uh, but they're only human. Anyway, I started in that position. And in fact, when I started in that position, I was told by the then studio head, well, you know, you're never going to be a narrator. So if that's what you're planning on, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, work at a, I work at a drive-thru at the bank right now. So being a monitor would be great if there's nothing else. But um, in fact, uh, I guess fate had different plans. And um, first I got uh, approved to read magazines. And then I got approved to read books. And um, forgive me if you've heard this before, but I finally, when I finally got my opportunity to read my first book, and I don't remember the title, and I think it's that sort of protective amnesia that we get sometimes, <laughs> I had the worst head cold. And I thought, really? This is going to be my debut slash test? So I've never, ever, ever revisited that book. I never want to. <laughs> and I'm glad I can't remember the name because if people ask me, I can honestly say, I have no idea. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, so we went from, you know, the big reel-to-reel studers and splicing tape with that little razor blade and then fixing it with that little blue tape. And so when I hear the monitors now complaining about, every, you know, like having to push rewind, I mean, having to push, you know, the back arrow on the computer, I'm like, yeah, right. Tell me about it. Um, <laughs> But I've also, no question, benefited as a narrator from, from everything being um, on the computers now. And it just makes everything easier. Um, sometimes, you know, when you're recording a book and there's, what, for whatever reason, um, an interruption, maybe I do a couple other jobs. I work with um, Denver Police in a thing called CIT training, crisis intervention training, where we um, do role-playing with police to help them sort of adjust um, to people that have needs, special needs, uh, mental needs, or, and, and, so that it's not just about slapping the cuffs on all the time. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. So it's a great program. It's a great program. Um, and I also do something similar with doctors where I role play um, to try to teach them how to be people too. Um, <laughs> so um, anyway, sometimes those gigs can come and there'll be a three-day gig and I'll come back to work and I'll be like, what does she sound like again? You know, all these characters. And so now we can just search and find that character, play back that little piece of what, I, what she sounds like. And I can, so it's, it's great, especially as I <clears throat> mature <clears throat> and uh, my brain is <clears throat> challenged. Um, so um, uh, I sort of feel like I was born to be a narrator in, a, in some ways, like there were signs pointing to this my whole life. First of all, my two grandmothers were huge influences without knowing. Well, one of them was a librarian, so it was all about books all the time. So I had the most beautiful library of children's books and then young adults, and so thank you, Thelma. And then um, on the other side, my grandmother Estelle Harmon Pardee, which is why I use the Harmon and the Pardee in, in homage to her, um, was very, it was all about the diction, all about the diction, enunciate, enunciate. So um, without knowing, they were sort of forcing me uh, towards this path. And um, when I was uh, in, in fourth grade, actually third grade, but then we were there for a few years, our family moved down to Texas, to Orange, Texas. Does anyone know Orange, Texas? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, not a booming metropolis. Um, and so uh, in fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Epps, asked me to read aloud all of James and the Giant Peach because of my quote-unquote accent. 
because I was from Delaware, and you know, I, I guess everyone would ask me, "Are you British?" And I, no, no, just, just, <laughs> just Delawarean. Um, anyway, so you know, who knew? But I was getting some training right then and there, so that was kind of fun. And then when I um, went off to to college, uh, I went to Northwestern University. And yay, Northwestern, um, where my younger daughter is going to start in the fall. I'm so proud of her. Um, <laughs> um, although, let's not go into the empty nest thing or I'll just break down sobbing and we won't be able to proceed. Um, uh, there was sort of a friendly rivalry between the theater majors, which I was not one of, <clears throat> and the it was then called oral interpretation and now it's called performance studies. And um, we just told them they were pretty and they called us the department of reading out loud. So, um, (laughs) so to that, I say, well, who's using her degree right now? Thank you very much. (laughs) I'm reading out loud all the time. And I just, you know what I meant to do when I got up here? See what I told you about the brain? I meant to start my stopwatch, Kim, and I didn't. So, just will you throw something at me? Okay, Okay, good. She's going to throw something at me, and I'll stop. So, if you hear an abrupt stop, it's because I've just been hit in the head with a book or something. Okay. Um, uh, So, uh, I mentioned, you know, living in um, Orange, Texas for a while, and I've actually lived in a lot of states all around the country. I was born in New Jersey, and then there was a short stint in up upstate New York, Virginia, Texas, um, California, Illinois, Maine, Massachusetts. Yay, yay, represent. Um, and, you know, that's, that's all well and good just in terms of seeing the country and broadening, you know, my understanding, but also in terms of when I have to do dialects at work, no problem, you know? And especially my name is very... Um, subject to region. So like down in Texas, I was Martha. And um, in Maine, I was Martha. And (laughs) in Illinois, I was Martha. And (laughs) in Delaware, I was Martha. Um, So again, maybe I was given that name just so I could really cement those different regional dialects. And and it does come in, it comes in awfully handy. uh, I love doing dialect. I love doing dialects in books. I love doing um, British dialects. Where I, where I don't look forward to a book necessarily is when it's set in Great Britain and we're having arguments between the Irishman, the Scotman, the Scot, and the uh, British person. I, 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 some, I think there's like pieces of my brain inside my booth where, where my head has just gone... Because it's just too much. It's just, you know, the brogue is, the Irish brogue is forward, the Scottish burr is backward, the Brit is bright, the, you know, and I'm just like, ah. So, um, but it is fun. It is fun. Um, one thing I don't appreciate, um, a, a question that I get frequently is, do you pre-read the books? And we don't pre-read the books because we got to churn them out and there's no time for that. Um, but it's, you know, it's part of, it's actually one of the... Um, one of the things that is part of my job and, and what, you know, people often say, oh, I'd love to do that job. I love to read out. I love to read to my kids. And that's great. Please read to your kids always. But um, it's a little different. <laughs> like, I don't know many children that would say, I heard your page turn, Dad. I heard that. Um, but um, one of the, you know, it's, it's not just narrating the book. It's, um, it's problem solving as you go along. And what I tell the monitor that I'm working with they sort of, their job is to stay with me and also to sort of play catch up and make sure that I got it all right. And my job as a reader is to 
be reading and be present in the, in, in the sentence I'm reading, but also looking down the page to see what's coming, also looking down the page to see the attribution. She screamed. So, you know, I'll say, and then I went to sleep. She screamed. Oh, never mind. And then I went to sleep. You know, so at this point, I can usually do it pretty well, but you still get caught up. But there's no catching up with the author who on page 174 of a 200 and 20-page book says he exclaimed with his Irish brogue that had been uh, that had been affected by living in Texas for five years. I'm like, what? What? No? Okay, just no. First, no, no. <laughs> what does that sound like? An Irish brogue with a southern accent? I can't even like go there. And I'm sorry, dear author. If you wanted the if you wanted us who are experiencing your book to know that this man spoke in this way you might have brought it up a little bit sooner, like the first time he spoke. So, um, yes, so uh, I use a little artistic license and might sneak in a little bit of a brogue at that point, but I'm not going to start over and try to recreate an Irish brogue with a Scottish accent. And this is true. This was an actual... She, this, yeah, they said his Irish brogue with a, Sc- a southern accent. No, 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 no. Um, uh, another... Um, Sorry if I'm jumping around a little bit. Um, uh, Talking about the changes in technology, my favorite change personally has been um, moving to the use of a Kindle in in the booth because no more page turn sounds, yay. Um, And again, it's just so simple to search things out. And um, we use, uh, we have a really great research department at our talking book studio. And... um, so they, they'll create pronouncers for us, especially for books that take place elsewhere um, or in another time where there's, you know, a lot of description of um, uh, clothing or, you know, I've gotten kind of used to it with the romance novels. I know how to say reticule. I know how to say, you know, brom or brome or broom. You can say it 600 different ways. Um, but every once in a while you get caught up. And the great thing about a Kindle is you can search that word and go back and fix it all the way through. So um, yay, Kindles. And um, at home, I have to admit, I'm still a, a paper and ink person. I liked the feel and smell of books. But, um, but uh, at work, in terms of expediency, uh, Kindles rule. So, um, so that's just another change. How am I doing, Kim? What do I got? Yeah, I was, I was going to read something too. Should I, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, stop talking and read, Martha. That's what we want. That's what we're used to. Uh, um, I just want to make sure, oh, um, one, and, and another one of the biggest changes, and I just like to mention this, um, you know, there are a lot of, as you know, I'm telling, like I need to tell you, there are a lot of amazing narrators in this program, and, um, you know, we all have our little stories, but I, I might be the only one who went into labor while, they, while I was reading. <laughs> um, it was, um, was with my older daughter, um, Adelaide. I didn't know that at the time. Um, um, and, uh, okay, we have to just, we have to just talk about, there's, we just have to talk about the elephant that's kind of in the room. Um, many of you know Eric Sandvold. Yes, yes, yay, great reader. So um, he and I are going through a process of, I think it's called these days, conscious uncoupling, <laughs> which is sad. However, we still work together. We still co-parent two wonderful girls. And, you know, as these things go, it's, it's pretty darn amiable. And, and so that's, that's too bad. But if I refer to my and their ours, certainly. Um, 
and you know we do we work together every day so it's it's not it's just one of those things anyway so um but i because i have to talk about him in this story i had taken time off because i was getting very near my due date but i was so bored i couldn't stand it so i said can i come back to work so they're like yeah sure so i was working at night because i couldn't sleep so i would work from new from one to nine thirty and was there one night, and this is January, and it was snowing like crazy, and sure enough, I'm like, oh boy. Eric was also recording in the booth next to me. So I had never had a baby before. This was my first one, but I was pretty sure what was going on. And so I kind of went and stood behind his monitor and waved, and they stopped, and I said, Eric, I think, I think, I'm, I think, I think we have to go. I think, yeah. And, and Eric said, Eric said, Okay, can I just finish this chapter? (laughs) Which is so Eric. (laughs) And I said, sure. I mean, what could be more important than you finishing the chapter? (laughs) So, um, So I went and sort of curled up or walked. I don't know what I did. Um, And then it was, it was time to go. And go out to the car and it is really snowing, like really, really snowing. And I go to get in the car and I see that his monitor is sitting in the back seat of our car. And I was like, oh, hi. And, and he, Tom said, yeah, Eric said you wouldn't mind giving me a ride home. <laughs> now, I don't mean to seem unkind, or, but, you know, I just, yeah. I, yeah, so we did. We gave him right home. <laughs> um, turns out, you know, there was no backseat berth or anything. We made it to the hospital at the time. But, but the funny thing about it is when I came back to work after being off for about six weeks, the only way I could make my voice match, because I was, you know, I had to pick up where I'd left off. Oh, and I was reading a book about the O.J. Simpson murders. It was horrible. I know. It's like... I hope, it's, I hope that it's true that it's good for your baby when you read to them, but not if they know what you're saying. <laughs> anyway, um, the only way I could make my, ma- my voice match was by shoving a pillow into my midsection and kind of... Cram- <laughs> sort of... <laughs> cramming my lungs and my internal organs back to that sort of crowded place that they'd been... <laughs> Anyway, TMI, sorry, but that's just thought you might like that. Anyway. And that that amazing daughter is currently in Oslo, Norway, studying at the University of Oslo. And I got do you guys know the app WhatsApp? Do you know about that? Oh my god, I just found out about it yesterday. I was upstairs talking to my daughter in Oslo for free yesterday. It was the greatest thing. Anyway, um, I guess I should probably segue into the reading. How much time do I have? Just so I do some reading. Yeah, how much time for reading? Tell me and I'll Ten, oh, oh, good. That's just about what my piece is. Okay. So um, I, they say I have 10 minutes for reading. And I understand that at 1.15 there's something where we can chat and people... I, and I'd love to answer questions. Okay. And so if you have questions or anything... And um, 
you know, I'm kind of shy. I really am. So, no, I really am. No, I really am. I know, I know, but I am. So, talk, if you want to talk to me, just come up and talk to, or just, you know, I, I don't approach people very much. I'm an, uh, what do they call me? An extroverted introvert. That's what I am. Anyway, okay. So, I love Anne Lamott. I love Anne Lamott. I love Anne Lamott. I love Anne Lamott. And um, so, I am going to read uh, a piece uh, from her book, Small Victories, Spotting Improbable Moments of Grace because I like that idea, because sometimes it doesn't seem like grace can be anywhere, but in fact, it always is. So this piece is called Ski Patrol, and I relate to the motherly embarrassment part of it. (laughs) Ski Patrol by Anne Lamott. Not too long ago, I was skiing in the mountains where Sam and I spend a week or two most winters. Nowadays, he instantly disappears with the hordes of snowboarders. I believe he is somewhat embarrassed to be seen with me. Once, standing next to him and his friend at the bottom of the hill, I fell over for no reason. And in fact, the very first time we went skiing together, I skied in a strangely slow, inexorable path for a hundred feet or so, straight into a huge net at the bottom of the slope, erected to protect the small ski bear children from being crushed. Then I got tangled up in it like a fish. After Sam disappears, I usually take the chairlift to the top of the pony slope for a couple of runs, which anyone can manage, and I triumph. I roar down the slight incline, pretending to be an Olympian. Filled with confidence, I try the easiest intermediate slope, where I mostly fall or slide down on my butt for the first run and then have, an, have extended runs of four or five minutes when I am actually skiing. By my second run down an intermediate slope, I am on my feet almost the whole time, skiing triumphantly for America. But this time, as the chairlift carried me to the top of the intermediate slope, which I had just skied down, I experienced a moment's confusion, born of hormones, high altitude, and a light snow falling. I suddenly could not remember whether the stop we were approaching was the same one I had just skied down from. The chair slowed and lowered for us to disembark, and my seatmate got off and zipped away like a swallow, while I sat there, torn between wanting to get off and thinking that mine was the next stop. The chair jerked forward and resumed its ascent. I looked around for landmarks, but saw only brightly colored skiers in clusters, and I was pretty sure that this was not the right stop. Until a second later, when I realized I was mistaken. It was the right stop. By then, the chair was four or five feet off the ground and rising, but I did not let this deter me. I took a long, deep breath, wriggled to the edge of the chair and flung myself off into the snow. (laughs) Flung myself, the way stuntmen fling themselves onto the back of speeding trains, or a clown flings himself from a bucking bronco, mugging bug-eyed for the crowd. I estimate that I was five or six feet off the ground for the timeless instant of eternity before I crashed down into the snow. I landed hard, proving the theory of gravity once and for all. 
I was somehow still on my skis for a moment until I fell over. I do not imagine anyone had seen anything like this before. Someone hurtling into outer space with such force from such a low starting point. I felt like Icarus, near death in the snow, with melting skis instead of wings. I was immediately aware of two things. I was not badly hurt, and that most people were pretending not to have noticed. (laughs) Out of kindness, or horror, or mortification. I am ever my mother's daughter, and so my first impulse was to smile with confidence to the few who were watching, wave like a politician campaigning from a rarely used horizontal position. I'm okay, I said to two pretty women who came over and offered to pull me up. I continued to wave nonchalantly, as if this sort of silly thing happened to me all the time. I told them that I just needed to catch my breath. They made sympathetic cooing sounds and skied away. I sat up and leaned back on my hands in the snow. By the time I finally stood, my hands were frozen. I was winded ashamed, confused, bruised, grateful only that Sam hadn't seen me. He'd have died. He would have stabbed himself repeatedly in the head with his ski pole. Just when I thought things couldn't get much worse, nausea struck, wave after wave, like morning sickness. And I thought, I'm going to throw up in the snow. Ladies and gentlemen, now for my next trick. I pretended to pinch my nostrils against the cold, but was actually pressing my hand to my mouth to hold back the tide. My head spun, and I prayed. I don't know how long I stood there with my hand clamped to my mouth, only my poles and a frayed patchwork faith to support me. All I knew was that help is always on the way, a hundred percent of the time. Rumi said... Someone fills the cup in front of us. I know that when I call out, God will be near and here and help eventually. (laughs) Of course, it is the eventually that throws one into despair. God always hears our cries and helps, and it's often a surprise to see what form God will take on the earth In the old joke, a man whose plane crashes in the tundra bitterly tells a bartender that God forsook him, that he waited in vain for divine intervention and would have died in the snow if it hadn't been for some, insert whatever word you want here, Eskimo, who came by. So maybe a tall, strong man with a medical toboggan would be by soon, or the two pretty women, or Jesus in earmuffs. Instead, a short, plump woman pulled up on skis a few minutes later. She was wearing an orange cap and an official jacket from the ski resort. I think I'm going to throw up, I said, so she wouldn't get too close. Well then, let's just stand here a moment, she said. I think I might need help, I said, which is something I force myself to say every few years. You landed so hard. I saw you from up above. I shook my head, bewildered, on the verge of tears. Are you on the ski patrol? I asked. 
Sort of. I'm here to help in non-emergency situations like this. Why don't you come with me? We walked to a 10 by 10 foot wooden shack away from the lift and went inside. Let's get your gloves off first, she said, and pulled them off as gently as if they were mittens connected inside my jacket sleeves with a string. She laid my gloves on the chair near the heater and pulled off her own. Mine are nice and toasty, she said. You can wear them for a while until yours warm up. I'll be back soon. I practiced concentrating between the waves of nausea. Yes. About two minutes. Two minutes, okay. I'll read fast. Um, uh, 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 I practiced concentrating between the waves of nausea the way I did when I was in labor, savoring ice chips and apple juice between contractions. Miles from home, holed up deeply alone in a smelly hut, I had the old familiar feelings of separation from myself, from God, from the happy, pretty people outside. I felt discarded, and I needed for time to pass more quickly. I would be fine with life's contractions if they would simply pass when I am ready for them to, so I can be okay again and remember what, after all, I'm doing in labor. Being human can be so dispiriting. It is a real stretch for me a lot of the time. I thought of the people I know from church and political circles who are doing a kind of psychic ski patrol in the world, noticing when people are in trouble refusing to look away, offering an ear and their own warm gloves to wear. Twenty minutes later, my ski patrol woman did come back, rubbing her bare hands together. How you doing? she asked. At first, the enthusiasm in her voice worried me, because she sounded as if we might now move on to calisthenics. (laughs) Then I could tell that she knew I was fine, better, rested. I was peaceful, She walked over to the heater and checked my gloves. They're all ready to wear again if you give me mine back. I stood up. I felt like my old self, which is to say, creaky, but okay. (laughs) I'd take the chairlift down, she said, unless you really want to ski. I really wanted to ski. I'd already had one great run down this slope. She made a huge fuss over me when I left, as if I'd been in an avalanche. I pulled on my gloves and headed out onto the huge white ocean of ice. I put on my skis again and headed down the slope. I glided and fell and got back up and skied little by little, the very best I could, all the way down the mountain. Thank you again, everybody, for inviting me. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Martha. Thank you you so much. Oops, I'm sorry. Oh, Martha, thank you so much. One more round of applause for Martha Harmon Purdy, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, hey, Rick. Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Unfortunately, Chair, unfortunately, Mr. we do not have time for questions at this point. However, you have actually two opportunities. At least somebody might have two opportunities. And what do I mean? First of all, uh, Martha will be at the Lua... BRL, and I think there's another AABT uh, uh, teacher's uh, program this afternoon at uh, 115. That's in Greenway E, so you can certainly talk to Martha at that point and have a discussion with her. And I have a special announcement that Martha has put an item into the auction. It is brunch with her tomorrow. So, some lucky person or people are going to... Mr. Chair... It, 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 it's got to be breakfast, so it's, she's got to catch the shuttle at 11 o'clock. So, 
uh, you get to have breakfast with Martha. That sounds like, um, it's not breakfast with Martha Stewart, but it's better Martha, Martha Harmon Party. But anyway, so some lucky person is going to get that, and we thank her for putting that into the auction. Mr. Chair, um, it's Dan Dillon. Just have a comment. Uh, make it quick, Dan. It's going to be quick. Uh, this is Dan Dillon from Tennessee, and Martha Harmon, Martha Harmon Pardee is my favorite narrator. And I'd just like to say that she's not only just she's not only a narrator; she is a performer. And every book that she puts her heart and soul in is is an outstanding yeah. performance and a flawless performance. And I think. Martha Harmon Pardee deserves a standing ovation from this group. Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, we can do that. <laughs> okay. Mr. Chairman. Uh, no more. No more. Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm not taking any more because we are... I'm not taking change. any... We're moving on. We're moving on, guys. A delegate change announcement? Uh, no. Nope. Uh, no more. Uh, Mr. Mr. President, or Mr. Chairman. I am not, I'm not recognizing you, Richard. Substitute. Nope. We, we, we are behind schedule. Okay. Next, we're going to hear about Braille and media assessments and all kinds of exciting things in the world of education. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our next panel. That would be Paul Edwards from the great state of Florida, president of the Braille Revival League. Mark Reichert, uh, Resolutions Chair and uh, erstwhile uh, all-good guy, and Sandy Rukinich, who is our banner representative for ACB from Salt Lake City, Utah. They're going to talk about Braille and media assessments and all sorts of wonderful things. So um, I'm not sure who's starting, but um, take it away, panel. Thank you very much. Good morning. It is our pleasure to be talking with you at a time that I think all three of us who are on this panel would agree is would agree is amazingly revolutionary. We we are at a place where we've just introduced a new code into the United States which is going to fundamentally change the way that we provide education. But we have also reached a point which many of us thought we would never get to, where it is imminent to have a Braille display available that will cost $500. And that means that at least potentially we are at a place where we ought to be able to increase the number of people who can benefit from reading huge numbers of books exponentially. It is absolutely wonderful to be able to be talking about Braille in the 21st century. I didn't do this. So, I didn't do it. Let's try again. So the good news about this panel is you're not going to hear very much from me. Um, but I do have the good fortune of having two people on my panel uh, who you will find it is absolutely wonderful to hear from. Uh, the first, I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing Mark Reichert because it's impossible to do it. Um, Mark, uh, Mark is really not a human being. He's, he's a, a sort of 
He's a sort of an, an ongoing force of nature who is uncontrollable. <laughs> so, but I am going to take just a moment to talk to you about someone who ACB is very fortunate to have found. And that's Sandy Rukinitz, who works on the, uh, access, on the faculty of uh, the University of uh, Utah as an adjunct professor where she's teaching exciting things like access technology. But more than that, Sandy is our representative to the Braille Authority of North America, or BANA, and, and I can tell you that that's probably uh, the hardest job any ACB person between conventions can be asked to do, um, because it involves not only working uh, at two intense meetings a year, which kind of last a week and 15 hours a day, but it also means uh, it also means reading all the stuff before you get there, uh, which is usually about two tons of material. So um, Sandy has both my sympathy and my admiration. So, which of you two guys want to start? Ladies first. Ladies first. There you go. Okay. So, uh, it is with great pleasure to tell us something about some of the things that are going on, Ben, and whatever she thinks is important for us in the Braille panel to hear to introduce to you someone who over the past three years I have come to deeply admire, Ms. Sandy Rukinitz from Salt Lake City, Utah. Well, I have to start as everyone else does. Good morning, ACB! Good morning! Um, Banna, it's, it's a pleasure to serve on Banna and... Um, I feel very, very honored and privileged to have that opportunity. Um, let me tell you about some of the things that Banna has accomplished this year. Um, one of them is Banna Formats. It, it is, we have a book called uh, Banna Formats, Principles of Print to Braille Transcription. And so this is designed to help make sure that what is transcribed for us, what we get in books, looks the same across books, especially in textbooks for children. Um, and so we had a, a version of that in 2011. Now we have an updated version that includes uh, changes necessi necessitated by UEB. And uh, so it's available currently on the BANA website, and I believe on the APH website. Um, also, if you are a musician and a Braille music reader, we have just completed a new uh, Braille music manual. And when I say we, I mean the BANA committee that, that does this, but Paul is right. We all have to read everything that BANA does in order to make sure that it um, meets our standards. And so the Braille Music Manual, um, although I'm not a proficient, experienced, professional Braille music reader, seems much more logical to me than uh, previous editions thereof. So um, it is also out there for your use on the APH website. Um, and also, we have a new document called Guidance for Using Nemeth Code in UEB Contexts, so that um, if you are a Nemeth Code user, 
you can go in and out of UEB into Nemeth and back again, and, and there are um, guidelines for doing that so that, it, so that it works, so that you know when you're in and you know when you're out of Nemeth. Um, there is an organization called um, ICEB, International Council on English Braille, of which BANA is a member. And right after our May BANA meeting, uh, we had a meeting of that organization. It only happens every four years. And it was exciting to represent ACB and BANA as one of four U.S. delegates. Um, that's where I first was exposed to that wonderful Orbit 20 reader that was mentioned earlier, and it is fantastic. And another thing right on the horizon, which I got to see, um, I don't know about you, but I would love to have, especially if I'm reading uh, some sort of math equation, something that reads more than one line of Braille. <clears throat> and um, in, in the UK, in Britain, they are producing something called the Canute. Um, it is an eight-line Braille display, 32 cells per line. Right now, it's not real fast. Um, it takes a little while to refresh because they refresh line by line and they start at the bottom. So, or excuse me, they start at the top. So, you know, as you're, as you're reading, um, it doesn't take all that long to refresh from the top. So as you read down, by the time you get to the bottom line, it's, it's refreshed, and then you, you turn the page, as it were, by asking for another eight lines, and you get that next eight lines, and it, it does the same thing. I think the concept is exciting, and they've had a lot of input from the blindness community in the UK, um, and I think it's just an exciting concept, especially not only for math, but also for graphics. For those of you who were at CSUN in April, the um, California State University at Northridge does every year a wonderful display of all things technology for disabilities. And this year, they had a total of 11 different kinds of refreshable Braille displays. I thought that was rather remarkable. And it's exciting for us because it means that Braille is alive and well, and that's what we need it to be. Um, so, um, also I wanted to let you know a little bit more about UEB. As was mentioned earlier, we're just in the first stages of UEB. It's been out uh, officially and being used for some six months now. Um, and so we're just learning about how things are going. And in fact, what BANA has done is to, um, we're developing a survey. Uh, it will go out soon to all sorts of people, particularly um, organizations that, that uh, are BANA members um, and their constituents, to talk about where we are, how's it going, what's working well, what isn't working well, what resources do you need to help it work better. So that survey will go out. We will get the results back. Hopefully, um, I, I always hate to 
say a date because things never work out. But by the end of the year, we hope to have some information about uh, how BANA can help in this process. And uh, we are excited about UEB and its implementation. Um, I think I am going to stop here and hand it to Mark. And thank you so much for your attention. It's a good time for Braille. It would be nice... It would be nice if all the sailing for Braille was smooth, but perhaps it isn't, and maybe Mark will tell us. <laughs> thank, thank you, Paul, for that great setup. Uh, and, and by the way, Paul, thank you so much for that undeserved introduction earlier today. Uh, today, uh, it, it's always a pleasure to speak before ACB. I'm wearing my uh, day job hat now. Um, I'm the policy director at American Foundation for the Blind, AFB is always a, such a proud uh, partner uh, with ACB on so many things. And um, for me personally, it's great because I get to work with amazing people like Eric and Tony. And uh, that's, that's, that's fantastic. So it's a great, uh, great job. I'm really, I feel blessed. Um, I uh, want to talk a little bit today about some legislation that we're hearing a lot about uh, at AFB at the state level um, and just sort of present you with um, the facts, maybe a little bit of interpretation, but uh, just mostly this is uh, sort of informational for this this group. So uh, as you hopefully know, the federal law requires that uh, kiddos who are blind or visually impaired get Braille instruction unless the IEP team uh, that's sitting around that table, the parents, advocates, uh, administrators, teachers, experts, just determine that for this particular kiddo it's not appropriate to receive Braille, and they are to do that after an evaluation. And that evaluation is really the subject of a lot of uh, sort of concern at the state level in as much as in several state legislatures, uh, uh, state legislators are being asked to approve legislation that would either specifically name one particular type of evaluation tool, namely something called the National Reading Media Assessment, uh, or to only approve uh, the use within the state of those evaluation tools, those specific tools and techniques that teachers or students with vision impairments or TVIs use uh, that comply with certain very rigorous research uh, standards. Uh, and so uh, why, why might you say might this be of concern? Well, take the first one. Uh, why concerns about the National Reading Media Assessment? I mean, I think a lot of things can be said about it. I am certainly no uh, researcher, don't have a PhD, don't have uh, that kind of research methods background, so I'm not even going to try to speak in, in terms of that. I do have such a brilliant soul who, who I have the pleasure of working with all the time, Dr. Rebecca Sheffield, and who she's brilliant, uh, and, uh, and others like her who have her, their PhDs in special ed and, other, and related fields. And uh, not so much Rebecca, but certainly others in our field have taken a, a bit of a look at this National Reading Media Assessment to sort of see what it does, how it's structured, how it's to be administered. And a number of folks in the special ed world have released a letter uh, to the blindness community, an open letter to the blindness community. The American Council of the Blind has signed on to it. Other groups are signing on to it. I believe the Council of Schools and Services for the Blind, or COSBE, has signed on to it. Mostly, I believe, at this point, it's mostly individual uh, PhDs, experts in special education who do understand something about research methods. 
Uh, and in particular, they're really concerned because the National Reading Media Assessment essentially provides the same, uh, is to be administered exactly the same way for every kiddo, regardless of that child's level of any remaining vision. So, you know, rather than, we don't really have the time to get into all the details, but just imagine if you're trying to assess a blind child who uh, maybe has a, a fair amount of usable vision, and you're trying to assess exactly what the appropriate reading media is for this kiddo, and how does this kid best learn? Is it with uh, Braille? Can the, child have to, can the child make use of any remaining vision? And then you administer a test that essentially says this, it will be a computerized test uh, that requires the child to sit at least 18 inches away from the computer screen. You cannot adjust lighting. You cannot use any optical aids or any low vision devices to make use of the screen. Uh, in that, and you certainly can't allow the child to sit any closer uh, to, to, to the screen. In other words, basic things that we would normally think of as reasonable accommodations uh, for a child with a particular uh, disability, in this case, a child with low vision. The question is, how well do you think that child is going to demonstrate their ability to do anything with respect to low vision? How, how much do you think they'd be able to do? So what's the purpose, really, of the National Reading Media Assessment? It's from the point of view of quite a few folks in the blindness field and a growing number, it's really to essentially stack the deck for Braille instruction in, and, frankly, to pit Braille instruction against low vision in that sense. Uh, how do the rest of us feel about it? I mean, clearly the national law needs to be maintained and strengthened if we can at all do it uh, to make sure that blind and visually impaired kiddos get Braille instruction, but it doesn't mean we're slamming the door on kids uh, with low vision. So we need to make sure that whatever assessment tools that we're using uh, aren't, uh, aren't, aren't, aren't uh, prejudicing, essentially, kiddos' needs for low vision services because we essentially stack the deck. The other piece of it that's of concern using a single... Uh, assessment tool like the NRMA is that really uh, when you're doing a so-called learning media assessment or an LMA, uh, you, you really want, it's really more about applying a, a, a series or array of techniques, a framework, if you will, for how you evaluate children. And every child needs to be evaluated uh, in, in, a, in a way that's tailored to their needs. And, uh, and that's really the biggest problem. I think the folks who have developed the National Reading Media Assessment, though I, I, I fully expect that they've done it uh, out of tremendous motivation and interest in uh, wanting to make sure that folks get Braille, uh, I, I think the, the, the fundamental challenge that we're facing is that the NRMA essentially applies a, a standardized way of looking at evaluating kiddos for their learning media when, frankly, our children aren't standard there is no such thing as a standard blind or visually impaired child, and, and, and that's, really, that's really the biggest problem. So legislation at the state level either talks about trying to, 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 that's being proposed, talks about the NRMA, or specifically says, look, there must be, there must be evaluation tools that are uh, research-based, uh, and, and that are formally validated, that are validated. And these are magic words in the research world. Uh, and the folks who are the proponents of the National Reading Media Assessment uh, like to uh, advertise or, or, or tout the fact that they believe that the NRMA is the only research-based and validated uh, assessment tool out there. And again, I don't even, I'm not even going to pretend to be an expert in research methods, but I can tell you that people that I think all of us can trust who do know something about it have grave concerns about the research basis for the NRMA, and we most assuredly don't have time to talk about that today. You might say, okay, great, 
you've told us about the NRMA, you've told us about the state legislation, that it either names the NRMA or it it tries to establish that only uh, research or valid uh, uh, learning media assessments uh, are are, uh, uh, to be to be used. Why is that a concern? Particularly that second one. I mean, don't don't we want to have children evaluated using methods that are in fact somehow scientifically based and have some 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 validity to them? And the answer, of course, is yes. We most assuredly do. The question is, do we have any of those right now? Either the NRMA or anything else. Once again. Uh, folks who are academics and ex- research methodologists uh, will tell you that no, indeed, none of these tools uh, that we're using are in that technical sense validated in as much as they have not been formally tested against sizable enough populations under the appropriate conditions and replicated to the point where we can say yes, from a scientific research point of view, uh, any of our uh, tools are used. Okay, so at the state level, if you've got a bill, maybe it doesn't say you must use the NRMA, but it says you shall use research-based and validated tools. If you don't have any, what kind of mischief do you think might be created, right? So that's the real concern. Um, if you've got either state legislation that names the NRMA or that tries to sort of imply that there is in fact one tool floating around out there that everybody should use, I think we get ourselves into some, some, some real uh, trouble. We certainly have seen that most recently in Virginia where state legislation along these lines was proposed and uh, folks in both the consumer and professional communities were very active at the state level to essentially push back on that. So I think the punchline for us, it, certainly at least at the American Foundation for the Blind, is you know, we're monitoring this, we want to make sure folks are aware of it, and, uh, and, and if these sort of interpretations, if you will, are in fact correct, as we think they are, um, that state uh, chapters of uh, ACB and frankly any consumer organization need to be aware of these concerns and uh, be prepared to respond to them so that we can make sure that whether it's at the state level or the national level, that blind kiddos are getting evaluated appropriately, which means individually and on an individualized basis, and furthermore, even though none of these tools, whether it's the NRMA or some of the other learning media assessment framework approaches out there, maybe they're not scientifically validated. And frankly, one of the reasons for that is because our community is so small and we, don't, we haven't had the kind of research dollars invested in us that we need. The reality of it is the, res- the, the learning media assessments that are being used do, in fact, represent best practices in the field, as has been demonstrated over and over again in research articles published in JBIB and our professional association uh, has echoed and on and on and on. So with that, um, I'll turn it, Paul, back over to you. Okay, so on Friday, you can, you can expect to hear some resolutions that relate to Braille, and uh, I hope you'll listen carefully and take appropriate decisions with regard to them. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, today's presider, do we have time for one question? Actually, we're going to do a res- are we going to do a resolution? We can. Oh, we are? Oh, we, all right. Very good. All right. So I guess we don't have time for a question, but for a resolution, I'm going to turn it over to the um, inhuman one, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Mark Riker. Let me put this back in its thing. Yeah, put it back in its thing. Over here. I find it. Oh, there you go. Nope. Nope. You want to use the mic on the side? 
We've got it. Yes, yes. Ray, hold on. Yep, 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 yep. I got it. There you go. If Paul keeps calling me inhuman, I'm going to have to double the hours I spend in therapy. Uh, with my computer. No, 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 no. I don't mean that. I am uh, now officially taking my AFB hat off, putting on a, a lovely beret. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a resolutions committee beret. It looks very charming. It's a velvet beret. Jeez. All right. Um, this is going to be resolution 2016-02, and this is about uh, much of what we've just talked about. Uh, and whereas, to meet the diverse literacy and learning needs of the heterogeneous population of students with vision loss, uh, teachers of students with vision impairments, TVIs, must be prepared to provide instruction in and use of Braille, instruction in print with or without optical and or electronic devices, and instruction in dual media. And whereas, students who are blind or visually impaired uh, including those students who may have additional disabilities, should be appropriately evaluated to assess uh, their individual learning media needs. And whereas TVIs must have access to an array of assessment tools and techniques so that TVIs can tailor evaluations of students' learning media needs to students' unique characteristics skill levels, and other individual factors. And whereas requiring the use of a single specific assessment would put students at risk uh, inasmuch as TVI's ability to tailor assessments for any particular student would be needlessly restricted. And whereas assessments conducted by TVI's should be research-based, data uh, driven and validated, <clears throat> and whereas there are currently no assessments available to TVIs that meet these exacting scientific standards for evidence, and whereas frameworks for learning media assessments commonly used by TVIs today are nevertheless based upon best practices in the field. And whereas the National Reading Media Assessment, or NRMA, is fundamentally flawed because it ad its administration requires that all students be evaluated in a standardized manner that denies these students access to the classroom and testing accommodations uh, to which they are entitled by law, in particular the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act. Now, therefore, be it resolved that this organization, and there are a couple of bullets, uh, urges the United States Congress and state legislatures to protect the integrity of assessments conducted by TVIs by rejecting calls which expressly or impliedly require the use of the NRMA or any other single specific assessment tool or technique to determine the learning or literacy needs of all students who are blind or visually impaired. Next bullet. Encourages state chapters 
and affiliates of this organization to advocate for appropriate assessments that honor students' unique needs for reasonable accommodations and which recognize the diversity of learning and literacy uh, characteristics inherent in this heterogeneous population of students with vision loss. And third bullet, calls upon the U.S. Congress to promptly enact the Alice Cogswell and Ann Sullivan Macy Act, which, among other critical uh, policy objectives, would uh, significantly increase federal investment in quantitative and qualitative research, allowing our field to identify evidence-based practices in assessment and instruction for students who are blind, visually impaired, deafblind, or who may have additional disabilities. Uh, Mr. Chairman, the uh, committee recommends a due pass. Uh, it has been moved and seconded to adopt this resolution. Is there any discussion? Um, I hear one call. Uh, Chris, get to a microphone. I am. You Okay. Mr. <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. This wasn't on, that's all. Uh, I think I understand the issues that are being raised with the, the NMRA, and I'm not unsympathetic to those issues. But they really don't answer a fundamental question, and that is that there is, in this country, and I can say very definitely in Missouri, a systematic use, particularly by administrators, and often uh, agreed with, or at least allowed, by TVIs who have no other choice, for a child who has any vision whatsoever not to be taught Braille. Administrators don't like Braille. Braille's expensive. A lot of teachers don't know how to teach it. And this resolution doesn't offer any solutions to this at all. Maybe you're saying the, the uh, NMRA is not a solution either, but it is something. And maybe polarizing the situation is not the best, but I'm not sure that we should be against the NMRA simply because the fact a child has vision does not mean they should not learn Braille. And that's what's happening in Missouri. Would you like to respond to that, Mark? You, you want me to respond? Yeah, yeah, why don't you respond to that? If he... uh, I, I think those are good observations. I would just say that this resolution is about making sure that there is no one single evaluation tool that's used across the board, that what TBIs need to be able to do is to tailor those evaluations to the specific child in front of them. The real challenge with the NRMA or any other approach that gets required for every kid is that it becomes, you know, sort of trying to fix a, a problem with an anvil when you, what you really need is a, is a, is a scalpel. And, 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 think, and, that's, um, and that's the real challenge. And I think, too, uh, that that is an issue. I think it's been around for, for years, and it's something that um, there probably, if we look back in the archives, I bet there are resolutions already about well, it. I'm sorry. I, what I also was trying to say, Ray, I'm is sorry. The, the other piece of this, and we don't have time to do it, but I mean, at the moment, we've got several resolutions on Braille, which I think will most assuredly address what you're talking about, because we do need to affirm Braille instruction. That, that too, is also uh, a challenge. Okay. Quite frankly, we've got folks on either side of this issue that we need to, to be mm -hmm. concerned about. So okay. stay tuned. Any other discussion? Here we none. 
Lori Sharp. Oh, there we go. Lori on, is it on the is it on this yes. resolution and yes. MRAs? Yes, okay, Lori, go ahead. Um, I in the be in the early on whereas clauses. I would like to see um, the fact that environmental impact, um, you know, such as you know ambient lighting and things like that, are not really addressed in the um, national. Uh, NRMA. So, Lori, would you be uh, comfortable by adding in the section on, that talks about individual characteristics of yes. the student making reference to the child's uh, uh, yes. need for ambient lighting? Yeah, you and, and I other have spoken about this. <laughs> Very good. Okay. Any other discussion? Um, hearing none. Yes, Mr. Chairman. Okay. We, we, we've. Uh, okay. Can, okay. Go ahead. Who speaks the floor? Terry Pacheco. Okay. Terry? I'm just thinking that these, the, the whereas that encourages our affiliates to work on this, and I don't remember the exact wording of it. It's a, it's a resolve clause. Yeah. But I'd like to see us add to that whereas not only our affiliates but other education-related organizations that we should be working with and challenging and encouraging them to work with us yeah. on this issue. Oh. So, Terry, would you be comfortable if we add a phrase that essentially says this organization, chapters and affiliates, and uh, our strategic partners, something like that? And other organizations, yeah. yes. Yeah, right, strategic right, right. partners right. in education. Yep. Okay. We'll, we'll do that. Okay. Any other, dis any other discussion? Mr. We are, Chairman. We are behind schedule. I'm going to tell you that. But, Mr. Uh, Chairman. Okay. Uh, one, go ahead, Don. Yes, just a quick comment based on the comments that were against the resolution. I'd like to briefly speak for the resolution. While I agree that there are problems with people not being taught Braille, taking individualization out of the evaluation process is not the response. I have a client who will tell you that his needs as a visually impaired person were not met because he learned Braille, even though he can read small print with no problem. And it's served as a disservice and a problem in his college career. Okay. Any other? Hearing none. Um, guys, what's, uh, we, we, are, we, we can continue the discussion if you We're going to take one actually, more comment. Actually, I just have a question. Um, this is Ellen, uh, New Mexico. Identify yourself, please. Ellen Nolan, New Mexico. Okay, Ellen. Uh, does this fall under the no child left behind? No, no, no it, it, it really doesn't. This is really special education specific. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never mind. Okay. I'm going to take, okay, the question's been called. All in favor of the adoption of this resolution, please signify by saying aye. Aye. Opposed. Motion carries. Okay. Okay. Now, let me let me let me explain how we're going to take the rest of this morning so that uh, everybody knows what's happening. I'm going to call on the RDC folks, Resource Development Committee, to make their announcements. Then, what we're going to do is give away three door prizes. And then we're going to move on with our program. We're not going to take a full break. We are behind schedule, and we need to move things forward. So if you need a break, please avail yourself of that opportunity. 
uh, as quietly as you possibly can. So I'd like, I need Catalina and Juliet to come up on stage and be ready to give door prizes in just a few minutes. And in the meantime, let's, and we're not going to take any other announcements at this time. Other announcements will be at the end of the session. So, uh, or end of the meeting. DC, are you ready with your announcements? Okay. Uh, who, who seeks the floor first? From Dan. Go Dan, ahead, I'm... Mr. Dan. Yes, sir. Um, and uh, Kathy Brockman, would you please get to a mic? And, and uh, Cindy Van Winkle. And I would like to remind you, we still have many, many ACB bra- Braille form raffle tickets for sale. You can buy them at registration or at the, the uh, mini mall. And members of the RDC committee, you win $5,000. Up to five people can go in together uh, to purchase a ticket. The drawing will be at the banquet. And uh, is Cindy or Kathy ready? Not on um, yet. Uh, Kath, okay. I heard Kathy first. All so right. Kathy, go okay. ahead. Okay. On behalf of the MMS committee, with the exhibit hall being closed, the table will be out in the back outside of this main ballroom. So that is where you will find the table. We are getting close to the $100,000 uh, annual goal that we're trying to reach. And wonderful. The, so thank you, everybody, for your support. And the daily drawing winner from yesterday is Dr. Lynn Powers from Indiana. And the only other Great. quick comment is if you change a charge card number or checking account, be sure to call the Minneapolis office. Thank you. Okay, and Cindy, are you... I'm right here. Here you go. Yep, Kathy and I were at the same microphone. Okay, Uh, the auction is tonight. So who's all planning to be there? I want to hear who's planning to be there tonight. That's right. Don't forget your credit cards, checkbooks, cash. Uh, Preview is at 6 o'clock. So if you're wanting to check out the jewelry and you're wanting to check out some of the memorabilia, the sports memorabilia, and um, some of the goodies, the uh, technology, and all of the other stuff that we will be offering, please come early. That six o'clock hour, there will be people there to walk through with you, show you stuff, uh, so you can get your hands on it. Um, So we want you to get a good look at what's available. We will start at 7 o'clock. There will be some special surprises tonight. If you haven't downloaded your uh, list, auction list, you can do that at the information desk anytime prior to the auction. There will be one braille and one large print copy of the list on each table. So please be willing to share. There will be food available for sale as well as an open uh, not an open, a Ooh. cash bar. <laughs> it will be open, though. The cash bar will be open for service. So you can uh, wet your whistle and have your bidding card ready and come to North Star tonight. And if you're late, it's okay, because we'll be going on till about 11 o'clock tonight. We look forward to having you with us. Come support ACB and the auction. See you tonight. You got me excited there for a minute, Cindy. <laughs> okay. Door prize people, are you ready? Okay. Do you, do you guys got a mic? You got the secretary's mic down there somewhere. Mr. Mike, Mr. Mike. There we go. Thank you. Okay. First prize is a $25 cash from you, uh, Minnesota. You betcha. Thomas Berginger. 
Are you I'm here? Ranger, are you here? All right. Tom. All right. The next prize is a lovely necklace with earrings and a uh, dishcloth, knitted dishcloth by ACB Diabetics in Action. Cecil, did you come? Cecil, are you here? Don't hear him. Moving on. Carlo Giuliano. Carlo Giuliano, are you here? I don't hear cheering. Carla Hayes. Carla Hayes. Oh, oh. Tyler Juranek. Tyler, are you here, Tyler? Oh. Sharon Lovering. Uh, working. She's working. She's working, so she will so get it. So she gets that. I'll make sure she gets it. Yes. And the last prize is another 20, it's a $25 gift card by ACB of Arizona. And let's see. Tony Stevens, Samantha get up Fisher. here if you're, uh, here. okay. Go ahead with the name again, Samantha, can you say hoop? One more. Huh? One more time. Say it again. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Samantha Fisher. Samantha Bishop, I think you said. Fisher. I'm sorry, Samantha Fisher. Don't hear her. Move on. Krista Delbeck. Krista, are you here, Krista? Don't hear her. Susan Crawford. She's here. Very good. Thank you, Door Prize people. We'll give out a few more at the end of the session also. Um, so uh, maybe a couple more. I'm in the center okay. of the, of the, I am in the, at the center of the podium if you come and collect your prize. Thank you. Okay. So they're up on stage if you need to uh, collect prize. Okay. I want to say I appreciate everyone's indulgence and uh, uh, helping getting us a little bit back closer to schedule. So thank you very much for that. Next, it gives me great pleasure to introduce a man who came to ACB and, I want to tell you, literally hit the ground running because he had a little thing called legislative seminar to plan. But he did that. He came, and uh, we are so pleased in ACB to have such a passionate and hardworking director of advocacy and governmental affairs. It gives me great pleasure to bring to the microphone Mr. Tony Stevens. Good morning. I'm taking a picture here because my wife will not believe. I want to make sure that she knows I'm working and I'm not on a hot air balloon somewhere. Let me try that again. Good morning. That's what I like to hear. It is an honor and a privilege as your advocate in Washington, D.C., to come here and address you this morning on the state of affairs concerning the matters of people who are blind in our country, in our country. Over my 43 years, I have been fortunate to call many places home where I've laid my head over the years. So before I get started, I just want to do some shout-outs to make sure some folks are here. Is Georgia here? I love hearing that in the back. What about North Carolina? Michigan? Illinois, yeah. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, yeah. where's Maryland, yeah. where's New York, donde esta mi gente de Mexico, anybody here? All right, what about where is our American Council of the Blind? From California to Florida, where are you? Everybody. The opportunity I have now here is one to try to rev you up. 
because this is a time for action. Now, I will be honest in saying Washington has two speeds right now, slow and stop. And it is about to take on the latter over the former as we move our focus out. So I want to take some time this morning and talk a little bit more about just the politics at hand that are taking place inside what we call the Beltway, which is the highway that encompasses the District of Columbia. I want to take a time, and it's fitting with the theme of our conference this year of 10,000 Dreams, to talk about one dream. In our nation's motto, we know it as e pluribus unum, out of many comes one. And our history for the past 235 years since this week, when those that signed the Declaration of Independence climbed back up on their horses and, and left Philadelphia, I can only wonder what dreams went through their heads of what they were creating. What dreams were they dreaming as the first American dream was born that week in Philadelphia? Now, dream has often been used as a metaphor in the work, the labors that we do to seek equal employment, to seek independence, equality, equal access, greater opportunity, all the steps. In fact, opportunity is synonymous with the idea of the American dream. So as I share with you what's going on in Washington, but more importantly, what's going on in your homes around this great country, I want us to focus on that dream today. How all the dreams in this room essentially come together in one dream, and through that one dream can make great progress. And I quoted yesterday in the afternoon session on advocacy and, and rehabilitation, a quote from an activist named Van Jones. And it's very simple in that Martin Luther King never said, I have a complaint, but he said, I have a dream. Now, in Washington, it is very easy to make lots of complaints these days. In fact, the only way you could probably get anything passed right now is if you were a post office needing a new name. <laughs> these tend to be the predominant types of legislation that get passed. Not even the things like dealing with the Zika virus or gun control after the atrocities in Orlando. Not even these things can get passed. So, indeed, for all advocates, it is a tough road to march right now in Washington, D.C. Attention has turned itself out towards the election. The conventions of the Republican and Democratic parties will be taking place this month as we depart here in Cleveland and Philadelphia. And from that, we will go into full steam ahead towards the presidential election. Now, going back to Martin Luther King, and I often get this from a lot of advocates who say, you know, but there is a lot of need to grieve or air our grievances. To say of the injustices that are being done for people with disabilities around this country, for the lack of access that we have as people who are blind to so much still in the 21st century. But in that, I remain a hopeless romantic. It's a type of opticism, optimism that King had when he talked of his own dreams, all the way back to Alexander the Great, when his optimism is what brought his soldiers to push his empire further into Asia, making him truly great. So in our optimism and by staying positive, we in fact still can move progress, even though we go home at night 
we close our doors, we hang our heads, we feel the weight of inequality on us. And in that moment, we still feel like we want to complain. When I talk to you about what goes on in Washington, we need to remain positive and we need to persevere. Now, earlier this year in the legislative seminar, as Ray mentioned earlier, we focused on a number of issues. I wish I could come here and tell you that those issues were passed through Congress and signed by the president. But again, we can't even get the things that really, really need to get done in Washington that are crucial, that everyone agrees on, done. So where are we then? We are on the march. We are on the march to 2017 to a new presidential administration, administration that hopefully will hear our concerns and act on our actions that we call for. We are moving into a new Congress that hopefully will work a little better together. It is looking like there probably could very well be a Democratic Senate again, but our hope is that in Paul Ryan's efforts to try to create unity within his own party, he can then move towards creating unity in both parts of Congress. Now, in that, it gives us an opportunity, an opportunity to take our agenda. So what is that? Where are we from some of the resolutions of 2015? Where are we from the imperatives of our mid-year conference? Now, those that were in Washington this past February and early March Remember that there were several issues that were of utmost importance to us that have been spoken of here on this floor through resolutions over the past couple of years. Our hope is that we can continue that progress. Now, in spelling out this progress, I want to get back to the dream. The Cogswell Masiac, H.R. 3535. Now, I myself, as I said, was a hopeless romantic, and my dreams were more of science fiction as a child. Because as someone who had, at that point, severe low vision and had no real significant services in school, I felt the hardships of reality weigh heavy. It is hard to think that 30 years later, we still have many of these same problems for our kids in schools. That we still lack the quality and breadth of education that's needed to make our children achieve the American dream when they leave schools. We need to make improvements through IDEA as in the Cogswell-Macy Act, that can create these opportunities and can better understand just what our children, because not one size fits all, especially those kids with low vision, what do they need? And how can we make them be successful? So we will continue to march on that front. For the dreams of those who are older age, who had dreams of their own of retirement, and saw those dreams derailed, as they had to readjust their life, maybe leave their job because of vision loss, maybe lost their retirement. And they can't afford the fundamental things they need to remain independent and in their communities. We had the low vision devices, Medicare demonstration that we were focusing on. It's HR 729. We did good progress in creating bipartisan language that got Republicans and Democrats to sign on. Our hope is that in the new administration, in the new Congress, we can get this bill reintroduced and perhaps put in an appropriations package. We are working hard in Washington on that, but we cannot do it without your stories of your affiliates and who you have back home. So those stories are just as important. 
so that we can make the dreams of ourselves and our mothers and our grandparents come a reality, so that they can continue to get what they need if it's devices to help them in the home place, even if it's trying to get ways to find services because we know with WIOA, as we spoke yesterday, there's going to be a supply and demand issue for our population that we need to reconcile. So we will continue to advocate as well for those things, for insurance companies to cover the services and the supplies, the things that make us independent. So let us work towards fulfilling to make sure that the American dream can be secured for those who have worked for it for decades. Now, I mentioned how I was a hopeless romantic and how, in many ways, the science fiction dreams I had in a child are also becoming a reality now. We'll be hearing in a little while from Blair Anderson with the National Highway and Traffic Safety Administration. I've had the privilege to be sitting in some some conversations with NHTSA as well with the administration and other advocates on autonomous vehicles. We've done a lot of work in the Department of Transportation this year. Where Congress does not act, we have tried to find ways in the administration to get involved. So we are trying to listen and assess just what positions need to be made around autonomous vehicles. We've also been working with the Department of Transportation under the Air Carrier Access Act and negotiated rulemaking process to try to make sure that The technologies being put into place in the 21st century on airplanes for entertainment and communications are accessible for people who are blind. We are working with DOT to write those regulations. We're also working to redefine service animals on aircrafts and what that means. And our hope is maybe that step can be taken further within the Department of Transportation. These are all issues we focused on over the years. We continue to focus on the pushing pressure, putting pressure on the administration and the Department of Justice for web accessibility so that we are not discriminated in the 21st century in this marketplace that has become a digital culture. We welcome the partnerships of Microsoft, Apple, and Google, and others in the industry to help us lead the way towards full digital inclusion. And our hope is that the new administration will take the lead of corporations and of advocates like us. So we will march on that front as well in Washington in the new Congress and the new administration to make sure that the 21st century is full of opportunities, that we are not denied the dreams that we bring here to this conference today. Please know that in Washington, we listen to the resolutions now and in years past, and we do what we can strategically, proactively to try to engage the administration and do whatever we can with Congress. We will not leave you hanging in Washington, but we can't do it alone. Next week, there will be a national effort to register people with disabilities to vote in the 2016 election. Doesn't matter who you vote for, but we need everybody in this room to vote. My plea for you is if you are not registered... There are efforts through Rock the Vote. There are efforts through other American Association of People with Disability, other disabled groups around the country working to register people who are vote. Go home, not just you, but everyone in your affiliate should be registered to vote. It is the cornerstone of 235 years of our democracy. The dreams that were left in Philadelphia and went with them to their homes were those of opportunity, but only at the hands of those of us who could stand up and vote for it. So get out and vote. And it's not just us. We cannot do this march alone. 
We need others to join us. The same way that Dr. King had priests, had rabbis, had people of color, had people who are Caucasian, march with him. We cannot do this alone. Not all of our members are here. Maybe some are listening right now on ACB radio. Maybe some are working hard right now and they couldn't make it out here. But when we get home, we need to tell them to join us. We need to tell them who aren't members, those people who are not members of ACB, to join us. We need to tell people from other inclusive, inclusive populations in our society to join us. We need to stand firm in our march, and we need to make sure that we are not alone in this effort. We can't do this on our own. In Washington, we need your help. But you need the help as well of others to join. So my other plea to you is when you go home, who do you have in your community that you can say, join us? Is it a city council member? Is it a member of Congress? Is it that congressional staffer? Is it the person working in the checkout line at the grocery store who asks you what the white cane means? Is it even the person that says you can't come in here with a dog and eventually they change their ways? Everyone is welcome to join us. Indeed, the seeds of opportunity are nothing more than dust in the wind unless they are tampered down by the soles of our feet as we walk towards progress, as we march towards progress. So I ask California, join us. Florida, join us. New York, join us. Illinois, join us. Maryland, join us. Tennessee and Georgia, join us. Virginia, join us. Louisiana, join us. All of our American Council of the Blind, join us. And those who are not members, become members. Those who are in our communities, march with us. We have a great opportunity at hand. Yes, Washington can be full of complaints, but it is also full of dreams. So join us as we continue the dream to bring to you the opportunity and equality that every one of us deserves. Get out and vote. Get out and get others to join. Because next year is going to be an exciting year, and I look forward to staying in touch with you all. Thank you again for this humbling opportunity to be your advocate in D.C. And we will, we will march forward. Thank you. Wow, well said, Tony. Um, okay, we do not have any time for questions at this point. Tony's going to be around, so please avail yourself of him. But uh, don't think any of us can add anything to what he said there. Love the passion. Anyway, one of the issues that ACB has been dealing with over the past several years, the issue of uh, hybrid cars. H how many of you feel that if you can't hear a car when you're about to cross the street, that that's kind of a problem? <laughs> Those of us who travel out every day to, uh, to work or to do whatever, we want to get home alive at night. And, uh, and so uh, to talk with us about where things are in the area of uh, hybrid and quiet cars and, and autonomous vehicles is... Uh, Gentlemen, we are privileged this morning to have with us the Deputy Administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Mr. Blair Anderson. 
He was sworn in as the deputy administrator August 23rd of 2015. And he's a passionate advocate to, of the NHTSA's mission to prevent needless death and injury on our nation's highways. Prior to the, his coming to NHTSA, Mr. Anderson worked as the chief financial officer with the Department of Transportation. He helped oversee a $70 billion budget, including a $21 billion loan portfolio. And, uh, and advised the Secretary on a number of important transportation issues. Prior to that, he spent eight years working with Congressman John Ellick, I believe it is, on various issues. He was known at DOT for his ability to work with Congress, and boy, we need that these days, and uh, uh, on the appropriations and other processes. It gives me great pleasure to bring before the microphone at ACB the Chief, the Deputy Administrator for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Mr. Blair Anderson. You're welcome, sir. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I like this room. This room has more energy in it than I'm used to coming to. Uh, so this is great. I've been here since I got to listen to uh, from about 9 o'clock this morning, and it's been impressive to feel. All right, I'm just going to pick it up then. Is this better? All right, good. Um, so as, uh, as, as he said, my name is Blair Anderson. I'm the Deputy Administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. It's uh, my pleasure to be here today kind of talk to you. Uh, it sounds like you have a very diverse set of topics that you're discussing this morning, so uh, I'm happy to be the one who gets to kind of uh, swing in and talk a little bit about transportation and what we're doing in, uh, in that world. So there's a, a few things I was hoping to talk about today, kind of three, three issues that we're working on that I think uh, are of interest to you all uh, and helpful in that, and in, in, in frankly, that you guys... Uh, have, a, have a good voice in, in terms of helping C move forward. So the first one uh, that, we, uh, that I think was just kind of referenced was the quiet car rule. Uh, then I also want to talk about kind of what, what does the future hold and what are some of the um, activities that we're working on that I think will have tremendous benefits. And that's kind of the automated vehicle space and the connected vehicle space, both uh, I think are kind of incredibly exciting piece of the future. So kind of knocking off the, uh, well, let me take a step back a little bit farther and, uh, and talk about who we are uh, at the Department of Transportation. So I work for the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, and we're an agency within the U.S. Department of Transportation. So NHTSA, as most people refer to us, um, our, our primary uh, kind of our primary mission, and it's actually kind of nice, we have a very simple mission, is to uh, reduce fatalities on the nation's roadways. So from, the, from NHTSA's standpoint, kind of the lens that we use to look at most things we're working on is, will this save lives? Uh, in 2014, there were 32,675 uh, people who lost their lives uh, due to incidents on the, the highways. This is the pedestrians, bicyclists, uh, passengers, drivers, the, the whole gamut. So that, that is our main focus uh, at NHTSA. But from the departmental standpoint, the department takes a much kind of broader uh, focus. They are, at the department, we're clearly 
concerned about safety, but the department has a broader mission of looking at mobility, uh, environmental benefits, uh, ensuring that our transportation uh, system works effectively, but that it also provides access and mobility for everyone. Um, so kind of going back to the three topics that I, I indicated that I was interested in talking about. The first one is the quiet vehicle rule. I suspect many of the people in this uh, room probably know more about it than I have. I do. I've, only, I've been with NHTSA 10 months, uh, and this, uh, your community has been working on this rule with us for uh, at least five, six years, if not longer. Uh, as you know, that this is a uh, regulation essentially to require uh, uh, electric vehicles, hybrid vehicles to have some sort of auditory noise when it's going at a low speed. Basically, uh, when the car is moving at a speed at which you would not, from kind of a friction resistance standpoint, you would not hear the vehicle, that the car needs to make some sort of noise so that people are aware it's coming, so that pedestrians are aware it's coming. Uh, this was a, uh, Congress put a mandate in place that we do this rule. We've been uh, working through this rule for the past about five years. We're currently in the process where we have sent a final rule over to OMB in March. Uh, and, and kind of, I'm throwing out government acronyms. OMB is the Office of Management and Bus Budget. Uh, <laughs> budget. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Yeah, busted. Yeah, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> uh, at least I hope it wasn't recorded. If I did, um, the, so they, they, it's a it's an office uh, that works directly for the president in a, in the White House and is kind of and, and does the interagency process review process of all rules. So it's part of the process. They uh, are reviewing the rule. Um, and our hope is that we will be able to uh, move forward on a final rule some point in uh, the near future. Uh, we think that this, is, uh, this has been a uh, departmental priority for a while. We've been working hard on it. I know when we talk about it, I said it, uh, that it's been five, six years. That sounds like a long time, and it is. Uh, it's longer than we would have liked but uh, that is the rulemaking process, and the rulemaking process takes time. Um, I would thank this community for all the uh, comments and support you provided along that process. That's very incredibly valuable, uh, and, we, and we look to get that done here soon. Uh, so kind of moving forward to uh, the next two topics I was going to talk about, uh, the automated vehicles and connected vehicles, and uh, these are kind of two topics that are uh, connected to each other. Um, as I said at the very beginning, NHTSA, we are, we are a safety agency, but some of these uh, technologies that we are looking at have uh, much broader implications than just purely from a safety. Um, so back to that 32,675 lives I mentioned earlier, uh, the, kind of that, that's what drives us as an agency. And one of the reasons we see automated vehicles and connected vehicles uh, as having such potential is 94% of those accidents uh, have some element of human error that was involved or human choice that was involved. That could be making a bad decision, uh, drinking and driving, going too fast, or just purely being distracted. Uh, so automated vehicles, kind of having a technology that takes 
on some of those driving functions uh, have, has a tremendous ability to kind of essentially mitigate some of those human errors, human risk. Uh, but then, as I said, from the departmental standpoint, we recognize that there is uh, much broader implications. Um, the automated vehicles clearly uh, have safety potential, but a lot of people are very excited about it from a environmental standpoint, that maybe you could use the highways more efficiently or that from a congestion mitigation that you could get more capacity on our roads without having to build additional lanes and additional roads. Um, but I think one of the things that we're probably most excited about is automated vehicles, connected vehicles, really open uh, a new mobility option for a lot of people out there. Uh, it's uh, folks in your community, folks in the elderly community. Uh, it provides an option that if you have a self-driving vehicle that could come to your house, pick you up, uh, and take you to your doctor's appointment, take you to the market, take you to go see your kids, take you uh, wherever you want to go. Um, that, that provides a tremendous societal benefit from those additional mobility options. Uh, so I guess the question then becomes, what are we doing to, uh, to kind of promote that and accelerate deployment? So... In January, uh, Secretary Fox announced in Detroit at the Detroit Auto Show uh, four, new, four steps that we're taking to kind of promote and move forward on the deployment of automated vehicles. Uh, clearly, I think the, what needs to be demonstrated as we move forward, we want to have kind of a regulatory structure in place where the general public is comfortable and believes uh, that automated vehicles are safe and should be on the road. Uh, that's kind of uh, essentially a threshold you need to meet. In order to do that, we have uh, committed to, by some point this summer, uh, releasing for the auto manufacturers and kind of the, the public in general a what we're calling operational guidance. This is a document that will... Um, provide the principles on which uh, we would further regulate in terms of how does a manufacturer go about demonstrating, validating, testing uh, that the vehicles and the technologies they are creating and innovating on are safe to be out on the road. Uh, so we're, we're going to provide some guidance in terms of what that looks like. That will be all... It'll be from kind of how you look at data, what kind of data needs to be taken, uh, how you start to look at the systems within the vehicle and be able to validate and, and make testing decisions for each of the individual systems. Uh, and it will go through a whole number of concepts. Uh, as part of that process, uh, back in March and February, we held a number of uh, public comment meetings, uh, one in D.C. at our headquarters and also one in California. Um, I think it was very important, uh, and we were quite pleased to see that folks uh, from, the, uh, from this community came out and spoke at these meetings. Uh, I don't think it, traditionally the auto industry has engaged very much or thought about, okay, as they're designing the car, how do they take into account uh, different uh, disabilities, different uh, kind of uh, meet different hearing needs, how do they meet different visual needs. Um, so having people engage in that conversation with them um, is an incredible part of the is an incredible part of the learning process for them. 
Um, so I, I thank you guys for uh, the folks who were able to participate in that. And I would encourage you as this kind of development process moves forward to kind of continue engaging and raising your voice. Uh, the automakers, NHTSA, the government needs to hear uh, how, what kind of tweaks need to be made to the vehicles uh, to ensure that everybody is getting the maximum benefit out of the new technologies that's moving forward. Um, the, the second element of what we're moving for in, in terms of what we're committing to do by the summer is putting together a model state policy. Uh, every, every, uh, every state, or the, I guess, let me, I'll take it from this standpoint. There's a lot of concern out there that different states are moving forward in different ways when it comes to automated vehicle technologies. And as a result, that may create a patchwork uh, effect across the country, such that if you were in a car and you're in California, or let me flip it this way, if you're in a car in Nevada where they are okay with there being uh, nobody behind the driving or the steering wheel, and you get to the California border, uh, what's going to happen? Do you have to get out of the car and transfer into uh, a, a taxi? Do you have to have somebody pick you up? Um, how can you essentially do you have to be uh, thinking about how you move forward across the country? I think the ideal is to kind of as the vehicles uh, work this uh, nowadays is to be able to get in your car in New York, drive to California without ever having to think about when you're crossing the state line. Are there different rules that you have to be uh, adhering to? Are there uh, different requirements or even can you cross the state line? So that's one of the things that we're working with. Uh, we have been partnering with the uh, association, American Association of Motor Vehicle Administrators uh, to essentially put forth model state policy. So then the, the last thing I wanted to talk about, um, there's, there's two other things, but they're all about new authorities. It's not very, it's, I don't know if we need to talk about them. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to talk about was connected vehicles. So from the standpoint of automated vehicles and connected vehicles, you probably hear people uh, use both these terms, and it sounds like it's two completely different things. Um, and for this group, I, I would just want to take a moment to talk about it. And, and in fact, we at NHTSA, we at the department, don't really look at them as, uh, as two conflicting technologies. Uh, so kind of, you probably, under, you, you, some of you might be sitting there going, okay, I have no idea what he's talking about. Why is, why is he talking about these things as being conflicting technologies? Um, so oftentimes when people talk about automated vehicles, they're talking about vehicles, self-driving vehicles, but vehicles that have radars, sensors, cameras in it that, that allow them to determine what's on the road in front of them. Uh, and then kind of conversely, connected vehicle technology uh, is a technology where we have essentially, I think it's e uh, easiest to describe as radios in every car, and the, 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 ra the car is essentially sending out a radio signal that the cars around it could hear that tells the cars around it, all right, Blair's car is driving at 35 miles an hour northeast along uh, Avenue 15, and it looks like he's about to turn right at the next street. And so the cars, could uh, the cars around me can take that into account uh, in terms of as they're trying to make the decisions about how they're going to move through the next intersection. So those are they're kind of two different technologies, um, but they, they interrelate 
uh, closely. They're, they're very, very connected. Um, we are currently working on another rulemaking process that would uh, require all vehicles to have these uh, connected, this, these communication radios, or we call it DSRC, which is dedicated short-range communications, that they would have these radios in the car uh, uh, as, as a standard feature. Um, and so why, why is uh, connected vehicles important? So I kind of described the basics of what it does. Uh, but essentially, it, it's a technology that allows you, and we've kind of through research seen that there's certain types of accident situations which these things, DSRC, is incredibly uh, useful for avoiding. Um, intersections, for example. When you can't see a car coming through an intersection, you're in a city or something, and there's no line of sight, uh, your car still knows that that car is coming through the intersection, that it doesn't appear to be stopping at the red light. Or if you are at a stop sign and you are trying to inch out, um, the car knows that something's coming and it will give you an audible warning. Or if it's uh, connected to an automated system, it will, the car will physically not move into that intersection. These, ha these types of or crashes have high levels of fatality risk. Uh, and so the connected vehicle technology is incredibly good at uh, addressing that. Um, it also has a, the capability for vehicle-to-infrastructure technology. It's a great way to see. Uh, you could set it up, and cities are very excited about how do you make, this, how do you make this, the, the uh, roadways more efficient. Uh, if you have these communications taking place, you can move through a city. The, the stoplights can know where the traffic is coming and can kind of uh, adapt on the fly to let the most throughput happen in different cities. Um, there are also tremendous benefits from a vehicle-to-pedestrian standpoint. Uh, take your cell phone. Your cell phone could very easily be in a, a position where it sends out a little signal uh, to the community around it. That way cars know, okay, there's somebody standing on the intersection in front of us and it looks like they may be stepping into the stoplight, or stopwalk, or not stopwalk, the crosswalk. Thank you. <laughs> I'm trying to engage you all again. I'm going to stumble through a few words and kind of try. <laughs> so that, that's the vehicle to pedestrian because uh, one of the things we've noticed in the last couple of years is Pedestrian fatalities, uh, kind of crashes and incidents that involve pedestrians or bicycles uh, have been going up uh, about 10% or so. So kind of vehicle to pedestrians, uh, allowing that additional level of kind of awareness of what's happening, hopefully will have tremendous impact uh, from a safety standpoint in that area. So that's an area where we're moving forward on a rulemaking. Uh, we are working on a, uh, it's called an MPRM. Uh, again, it is with the uh, OMB and is currently going through that review process, and we hope to have it out very soon as well. Um, and I kind of started to talk a little bit about automated vehicles and connected vehicles being uh, kind of connect, uh, that they're not mutually exclusive. And the reason I wanted to kind of highlight that one more time is uh, it's not an either-or type situation. It's a, it's a both-and um, that when you have a vehicle that has the radars, the sensors, the cameras, and is using those technologies, essentially the connected vehicle technology becomes an additional informational input uh, into the, the car so that it is 
improving its ability to make good decisions to understand what the environment around it is doing and how uh, what sort of actions it should be take the car should be taking to mitigate any sort of uh, mitigate any sort of danger and to avoid any sort of accidents uh, and crashes so um, we're incredibly excited about this work. Uh, we think it has tremendous potential from a safety standpoint, for, but also from a mo mobility standpoint. Uh, I'm happy to ask, answer any questions about it, um, talk about it forever. Uh, but I, I, the one thing I kind of leave with you again is I think the, your community has been raising a very valuable voice over the last uh, six months and encourage you to continue to do so. Um, let me, uh, get to the <laughs> okay. Thank you. We do have some time for questions. Yes. Thank you. Um, we do have some time for questions. Um, we. Um, I will take. I heard a lady at the microphone. I think it was Nancy Younger. Identify yourself. Okay. Hi. Hello. Okay. I heard a woman first. So. Okay. Back to Rose. Back to Rose. Thank you. There you go. Uh, identify yourself, please, and ask your question. Yes. Uh, I'm Betsy Doan from Connecticut. I'm wondering, uh, is there any consideration uh, to RF protection and uh, mobile devices used in these connected cars um, so that people would be able to still operate mobile uh, equipment uh, without interfering with the radio signals? Okay, did you take that? Is it? Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? All right. Sorry, I grabbed another mic. <laughs> Can you hear me? Um, so, if I understood your, if I heard it correctly, uh, your, and correct me if I'm wrong. I think your question was, as we have these communication, this DRC, sorry, the DSRC. Uh, devices in the vehicle communicating between the vehicles, would you still be able to use your mobile devices in those vehicles? And the, the answer would be yes. Um, the goal, is that correct? If the, did I understand the yeah, question? She said yes. Yeah? Okay. So the, the answer would be yes. Um, the DSRC would by no means interfere with uh, your mobile devices. In fact, they're actually uh, to, not to get too technical, they use uh, different portions of the radio spectrum so that they're in, they, they're, they're not. Radio spectrum do they use? Uh, um, 5.9 gigahertz. Let's, yeah. <laughs> okay, other questions? I heard a gentleman, I think, looking for a microphone. Ken Stewart. Okay, Ken. Yeah, thanks. Uh, before my question, a quick piece of information for the folks in the room that are interested in autonomous vehicles. The latest issue of Car and Driver magazine, which is available in audible formats from Library uh, for the Blind, has several reference articles referencing auto autonomous vehicles, so I recommend that. Car and Driver, June issue, if they're interested in that subject. My question is about back to quiet cars. Uh, years ago, I heard that statistically the percentage of vehicle pedestrian accidents for vehicles that can operate quietly, either hybrids or electric vehicles, was significantly higher, and, uh, and I'm sure it still is, 
but that some states require that the police reports for pedestrian vehicle accidents indicate whether or not the vehicle is, has that capacity, and some don't. When I heard that, I went to my state, New York, and I met with the, I went to the, the state highway safety board, which determines what's required on police reports, and asked them, please include that in the police reports. Do we happen to know how, uh, what the status is now? I know the federal government can control the states on that, but are you trying to influence states to have that kind of factual information included in uh, accident reports? I think, so through our agency, we do a lot of work with the local law enforcement communities, especially um, rely on them very heavily in order to understand and develop our national statistics about on uh, crashes and fatalities and injuries. Um, I don't, I, I can't speak to whether all of them now take into account uh, quiet vehicles in terms of their, their accident reports, but it is something that we, we do push because we, we recognize that's another data point that we need. And, and especially as part of our quiet vehicle rule, um, in order to justify it from a kind of the, the, the very uh, narrow, uh, I guess the very technical cost-benefit standpoint, we need that data point uh, and have been working on that for the last years with many of those folks out there. So I can't speak to whether all 50 have it at this point, but I know it's something that we encourage and, uh, and push through our kind of data-gathering process. Any yeah, other questions? Um, I hear Michael, Michael Biden? Yes. Go ahead, Michael. Yes. With regard to autonomous cars, uh, some manufacturers, Volvo is one that comes to mind, is going to have a vehicle uh, on the market which largely has the features. And it's my understanding that many vehicles have designed in self-driving features which cannot be activated because of the state of the insurance industry and the driver's licensing industry. But I know the Volvo car and several others that are being designed are designed with the idea that the car will essentially be an autonomous driving car but that a licensed driver still has to be sitting behind the wheel. The manufacturers are saying that, in fact, we can go past that, that a blind person should be able to operate a, uh, an autonomous vehicle. My question is, what moves will be taken with the insurance industry and state legislatures with regard to driver's licensing to ensure that when this technology is available, it is available to us. Thank you. Right. So I think that's a, that's a very important point. Uh, and that's part of what we're working with, with the model state policy. Um, when you, I, I think when you refer to there are some states that require a, a licensed driver behind the road, when California put out, California is required by state law to put out regulations. Uh, and as they put out kind of their draft framework or their principles last fall, one of the things they included in that is that there needs to be a licensed driver in the car. Um, we at kind of NHTSA and the department, and, and I think this goes all the way up to Secretary Fox and um, even the president, I know he's, the president is incredibly excited about this for that reason, have been very clear that we want to see a world where you do not have to have a licensed driver in the car. That if, if they could show, if through testing we could show that the car can function without a driver, 
then there is no reason to have a licensed driver in the car. This applies to blind people. It could apply to people for whatever reason uh, are incapable of driving. It may even apply to having kids in the car. There's, uh, it, as a parent, that makes me a little nervous. But, <laughs> but the, the, the principle is we do want to have a regulatory framework in place where you do not need to have a licensed driver in the car. Okay. And that gets back to the whole mobility, uh, the mobility benefits and, the, and that societal potential that we see with this technology. Any other questions? Okay, I heard Arlo Monte first, and then I'll take Doug, and, and we'll, we'll take three more questions. Okay, I heard Arlo Monte. Go ahead. Charlie, go ahead. I have a quick question. Uh, how would you indicate to this autonomous car where you want to go? Is if, if it's a touchscreen input, we may have difficulty with that. Uh, as a former therapist, if you have people with speech impairments, uh, be it cerebral palsy or... Uh, you know, hearing loss or whatever, and are more difficult to understand, how does the car get that information? I think that gets kind of um, back to the point I made about continuing to make sure your, your voice is heard. Uh, so we at NHTSA, kind of our regulatory authorities, I'm, I'm not sure, like most of our authorities are based upon whether there's a safety implication. Um, but we do, and we, I think we, through this process over the last couple of years, or last six months, have tried to raise some of these additional questions. Uh, how are people going to interact with the car? Um, and try and essentially make sure the, the auto manufacturers are broadening their mindset in terms of uh, thinking about, okay, uh, these are, different, these are different interactions that we haven't necessarily built in cars in the past, but going forward, um, there's, a, there's a large market here, and we need to take advantage of this and, and build our cars and expand our thinking in terms of how we build our cars to take into account some of these uh, essentially new customers that we're going to have the potential to serve. Um, and I think the way they know that there's that customer base is by continuing to raise your voice and make sure that they're hearing that we need to have these alternative ways of kind of um, alternative ways of interacting with the vehicle. Okay. Doug Powell, you're next. Ray Campbell, Kim Abier. Um, I heard, I want, I'm going to take Doug first, and I'll take you, Kim, and Kim, you'll be the last question. No, okay. I had asked earlier as well, Charlie. I don't like it. It's not working. Oh, he's on, Doug Powell's on a mic that's Hello. not working. Hello. Hello. I've been trying to get the floor for there several, you go. There several you go, Doug. minutes, and uh, so this system is not working very well yet. Um, you talked about the hybrid cars being identified as a source of the crashes um, and uh, identifying. Um, the other side of that is identifying when it's a visually impaired person who is the, uh, who is the victim of a crash, in a, you know, especially in a pedestrian situation. Uh, is it your pur in your purview to... Uh, give guidelines to the states and local uh, local uh, localities to uh, collect that kind of information. For instance, you know we work on uh, accessible pedestrian signals and have, are having trouble getting them implemented. 
and if we had more information about how many you know, what percentage of pedestrian accidents involve people with vision impairments, it would be a really great uh, thing for us to be able to go and make the streets safer for blind and visually impaired folks. Okay. Okay. Um, point noted. I, I, I will take that back to the team and talk to them about how we could make sure that we're kind of breaking down into that extra layer of uh, data detail so that we know both whether it's uh, hybrid or electric vehicles that are involved, uh, essentially a quiet vehicle that's involved, but also uh, who's on the other end of that, uh, that crash. Um, it does, uh, <laughs> as you mentioned it, it does, I, I kind of was chuckling to myself a little bit because uh, I think it's, it's not just kind of the visually impaired community that has issues with uh, quiet cars. I think there's, there's plenty of people out there now who are so distracted and looking at their phone that, <laughs> that they, right. yeah. <laughs> they have no excuse other than they're looking at their phone and they just don't hear the car coming. <laughs> okay, uh, Kim Abier, and you'll be the last question, Kim. Okay. I, thought I, had one. I just wanted to know, is the cars that, this, that you're describing going to be American-made, and are the software and hardware going into them <laughs> going to be American-made? And if an accident does happen, who becomes responsible? So on, on the American-made question, every, basically every car manufacturer in the world every part supplier in the world is working on automated vehicle technologies. Uh, so the American-made cars, GM, Ford, uh, Chrysler, they are putting <laughs> tremendous efforts into it. In, within Silicon Valley, you have Google, a number of different American tech companies that are working on it. But it's, it's by no means uh, just an American... Uh, it, it's not just the American industry that's working on it. Everybody, everybody in the world. So if you want an American-made uh, automated vehicle, uh, you should, I guess, probably buy an American-made car. Um, on the, on the well, other issue of liability, there, I, I think that's far from a settled question right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Volvo's CEO has said that if, it's an automated, if, it, if they're using an automated or let me put it this way, if an automated vehicle uh, function is active at the time that there's an accident, uh, the company will take responsibility, since in theory it was the company's design and implementation that led to the accident. Um, there, now, there's a lot of, I think, gray area in that. It's, uh, there's, the, there'll be room for argument about was the, uh, the, the person who is using the car uh, operating it correctly? Was it uh, operating in correct circumstances? Um, but I think the liability, the liability question, there'll be a lot of discussion on as the technology matures. Oh, yes. Please, one last Mr. question. Mr. Anderson, thank please you one very much. No, 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 sorry. It's about connected well, vehicles and APS. Uh, no, we are, okay. we are not going to allow one. I'd less. sure like to know what let's, uh, one Let's thank Mr. Anderson for the um, off the microphone. Let's thank Mr. Anderson. Thank you, Blair, for coming. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Okay. And uh, you can be assured that our voice will continue to be raised as an organization on these very important issues. Okay. It now gives me great pleasure to introduce to you, um, you know, last September we had a situation. We needed an executive director, and uh, we, we found one. 
And since this gentleman has come, has uh, moved into that position, uh, the kind of a theme here, he hit the ground running. And he is a gentleman with a lot of great ideas and a lot of great uh, skills and abilities. So to give his first executive director's report to the American Council of the Blind Convention, gives me great pleasure to bring forward Mr. Eric Bridges. Right up here, Eric. Well, good morning. The only thing between lunch and you is me. So, uh, it has been a whirlwind of the last several months. Um, I am uh, so happy to be able to uh, work for this organization and uh, be in the role that I'm in now. I've been with ACB, for those that aren't familiar, I've been with you guys for nine years. But the other interesting thing that I'd like to just share, if I could, is that I've been with ACB as a member for almost half my life. Uh, so I joined as a, as a student in 1999, and I've been coming to every convention since. So, it's a, it's a personal thing, it's a professional thing. Uh, obviously, a lot of you know my wife. She's very active in ACB as well, Rebecca. And uh, in the coming years, yeah, give her, give her a clap. In the coming years, there'll be a young volunteer named Tyler that will be here. He's with his grandparents right now. So, he'll be two in August. So, good stuff. Uh, I'd like to begin my remarks by thanking our wonderful staff. Um, you are meeting them every year here at convention. And that is the lens through which most of you know these folks. Uh, this is an intense week for them, incredibly intense, because there's not a lot of them, and there's a hell of a lot of you. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, we have volunteers here, which is fantastic, and we appreciate that. We appreciate all the support that we get from the volunteers. But our staff, they're the ones that are registering you. They're the ones that are uh, helping you get from place to place in the hallways. Uh, this is crazy, but this isn't the only thing that they do. In fact, it's far from the only thing that they do. They are jacks of all trades, or Janes of all trades. Never heard of that one. Just made it up. Um, but uh, the folks in the Minneapolis office, uh, led by Elaine Waters, uh, Nancy Becker, Lori Sarf, and the Theon. These folks ensure that we keep the lights on. They manage all the finance and accounting in this organization. But they do even more than that. You all are assembled out there in your states. You all have a certain amount of votes based upon your membership. 
they help to calculate all of that data through the course of the year. And some of you make it exceedingly easy on them, and some don't. <laughs> so, one of the things that I've learned is that uh, they spend an enormous amount of time on issues pertaining to membership, uh, as does Sharon Levering in our national office. These folks don't get recognized outside of the convention for the work that they do. Uh, and a lot of it is behind-the-scenes work, but it is critical work to the, to the infrastructure of this organization, how we operate day-to-day. -day. We, we have three thrift stores that we operate. Uh, Lori Sarf manages that effort in ACB Enterprises and Services. So... There is a lot that these folks do in the office here in Minneapolis that we don't, uh, that's not readily apparent because we're an advocacy organization, right? So all the glitz and glamour of lawsuits and arguing over proposed regulations and all this other stuff, which is at the heart of what we do. But we have to make sure that we keep the lights on, we're paying bills, and we have to make sure that we're maintaining a good membership database. And that's what they do for us. So please thank them. So, we have our national office folks. That's where I work. We moved our office from Arlington to Alexandria, basically right next door. Uh, it's about the same commute for me. It's a far more interesting commute for all the rest of my colleagues. <laughs> And uh, it's been interesting with the metro system being uh, going through uh, significant repair uh, uh, and uh, the commutes that they have had coming to work. Uh, I'd like to thank very much the work of Sharon Levering. She's the Braille Forum editor, but she does a lot more than that. She works with folks that call in from within the membership and, frankly, the broader blind community seeking assistance. Uh, for, a lot of, for a lot of folks that call us, we're the first sort of uh, lifeline that they have. Uh, many people have recently gone blind, so we're, we're talking all over the phone to uh, parents of kids who are blind, children of older uh, parents who may have just gone blind. We're talking to folks that may have just gone blind themselves. We're talking to the whole sort of uh, smorgasbord of, of person out there that's seeking information. And, uh, and, and a lot of the time, they're very confused and are very scared. So, it's an interesting day sometimes, going into Sharon's office and asking her how she's doing. <laughs> She's a, she's a really positive person. Uh, next, Kelly Gask. I, I refer to her as, our, as a, like our Swiss Army knife. She, she can do a lot of different things. And she always carries around a bottle opener, which is great. No, I made that up. Um, but Kelly has been with us for about a year and a half. And in that time, 
uh, her role has expanded. Uh, primarily, she's been more of an, an administrative role. But one of the really cool things about Kelly is her background in design, graphics design. And she's helping ACB to look better visibly uh, through social media, through other publications, and uh, working with our, our development team, Tom Tobin and Jolyn Bailey-Page. Uh, it is it is fantastic working with her, uh, getting to be able to to utilize her skills and talents in a way that is really beneficial to ACB and is something that we have not had for a very long time. So thank you, Kelly. The Reverend Tony Stevens. <laughs> um, that was an awesome presentation this morning that Tony gave. And uh, he is somebody that, that I've known for about six years now and uh, worked very closely with him in his old role at National Industries for the Blind. And uh, is somebody that I uh, have a lot of personal and professional respect for. Uh, he has really uh, hit the ground running. It's very nice to be able to hire somebody to come on to staff that you don't have to teach um, everything to. Uh, he, he knows the blindness community. He knows the issues within the blindness community. The other thing that is important to know about Tony is that he's also an ACB member. So he's a member of our Maryland affiliate. So he, he shares our values which is exceedingly important given the amount of advocacy work that there is to be done. And uh, he has a, a very diplomatic way of going about and advocating, which uh, I like and I hope you do too. So thank you, Tony. It, yeah, please. So we have all these folks, we have uh, contractors that do exceedingly important work. Joel Snyder, as head of the Audio Description Project. We've been working with him. Uh, there's going to be an audio described tour uh, of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., uh, which is going to be fantastic. That's part of the Audio Description Project. That's Joel's leadership. I mentioned Tom Tobin and Jolyn Bailey-Page. It has been a lot of fun in my new role working with them. Development is so important. Being able to go and raise money for the organization that I care so deeply about. We are in a far better financial situation than we were a year ago at this time. Some of that has to do with us moving and reducing cost and overhead. But some of it also has to do with the fact that there are grants that we've received. And then there's this convention, which is really cool, guys. So last year, we raised $163,000 in, in sponsorships for this convention, which was an all-time high. Yeah. This year, as of the end of May, we had raised $240,000. 
So there is a story to be told here. And the dollars and cents mean a lot to us as an organization, as a nonprofit. We need that to continue to move up year over year. But, but the story behind it are the relationships that we're creating with companies, like Uber, who is here for the first time. Like Microsoft, who we had a rocky relationship with, right, guys? We got their attention. Their, you heard Clint Covington's speech yesterday, which, by the way, I thought was awesome. Um, they have a long way to go to, to get to where we want them to be, and they understand that. We're going to continue to hold them accountable, but we're at, a, at such a better place with them. The cool part is they understand the value in working with us. Our value is our members. It's you guys. That's the value that we provide to companies. And they're, they're seeing that. And they're bringing people. Microsoft has four people here. Uber had two people here. J.P. Morgan, who's going to be here uh, today, tomorrow, Friday, they'll have people here. You all are aware of their generosity. But they're, they're coming to our banquet on Friday night. So it's not as though they're just throwing us money and, uh, and going on vacation the week of 4th of July. These people are actually here during a holiday week, which says a lot about us. It says a lot about their value to us in getting feedback. Uh, and it also says a lot about how we approach, our approach to solving problems, solving issues that we have with our products or services, how we approach them, how we propose to, to work with them. This stuff is important. Uh, and, it's, and it is my intention for this to continue to grow. Because you all are aware, uh, we're always going to have challenges with accessibility. It's just part of this, this world we live in, which means it's a great full-time job for me, like lifetime full-time job. Whether or not I work here or not, um, you know, it, it, it can get frustrating. It can get uh, a little tedious at times. But when you're working with partners that are taking your feedback and you're able to see real improvement being made, that's very satisfying. And I hope that you all are beginning to see some of that from some of these companies. And if not, you will soon. So... Given the size of our offices, um, I still do some advocacy work, um, and I think I probably always will. Uh, I wanted to just give you an update on a couple of issues. Number one, uh, both of these issues have been talked about previously by uh, our president during her report Sunday night. Uh, we were able to successfully resolve the taxi lawsuit in Washington, D.C. against four taxi companies. I am very pleased to be able to announce this to you all. Uh, it has been a long three years since the first undercover investigation of, of this unfortunate practice was, uh, was shown 
uh, by the, the CBS affiliate in Washington, D.C. What, what we were hoping to do and what I believe we accomplished through this resolution is to be able to set up something that isn't Washington, D.C.-centric, but rather uh, a way to monitor a way to hold accountable taxi companies that other municipalities could look at implementing if they so choose. So this isn't only for Washington, D.C., although Washington, D.C. has a rather unfortunate history of uh, really shady dealings with the taxi industry. Uh, We're holding these four companies accountable. They've agreed to... Uh, to contribute money to a testing fund that's going to be managed by ACB. What it equates to is $15 per cab per company. So it sort of roughs out to around $17,000. This fund will be utilized. We will be engaging with a third-party contractor that will go out and hail, street, do street hails for cabs, Uh, along the roads and streets of Washington, D.C. These individuals that will be hailing cabs will be blind and will be using guide dogs. So why are we doing this? Well, the first part is that each of these four companies have agreed to uh, rework their non-discrimination policies and require their drivers to sign them. And in that non-discrimination policy, it specifically references the need to, to take, to carry individuals who are blind that use service dogs. So very good. It's a very good first step. Along the way, the DC Taxi Commission, which essentially had been asleep at the wheel through this whole process, decided that it might be a good idea to put together a sensitivity training dealing with individuals who are blind that use service dogs, guide dogs. And it's rather robust. I'm very pleased with it, as are the taxi companies. One of their biggest frustrations is that they'd never got any, any guidance from the taxi commission. Uh, some of that is true and some of that's a cop-out. But we'll move forward uh, with, a, with a smile. This is, this is good work on our part. This is good advocacy work. This is great for the citizens of Washington, D.C. However, this impacts a whole lot more people that come as tourists or on business from other parts of the country or around the world. So this, while it impacts only Washington, D.C., it impacts folks from all over the world that are coming and, frankly, just expecting to be able to hail a cab and get into it and go wherever they want. So, fantastic. So, the, the last thing I'd like to talk with you a little bit about is our currency issue. And I know that, that our president spoke about this on Sunday evening. It is excruciatingly frustrating, this accessible currency case that we won... I swear to you, we won in 2008. I know it doesn't feel that way, but we did. In May, uh, as you heard, the 
the government filed a supplementary report with the court uh, providing an update and essentially saying that it could take till 2026 because of uh, security issues. I am a, I'm a taxpaying citizen like you guys, and I am concerned that it takes our government 10 years to deal with a security issue dealing with currency. Think about that. Wouldn't you want that handled yesterday, tomorrow? Not out 10 years. We filed a declaration and a motion in, uh, with the court, obviously opposing this, saying that it's not a mutually exclusive thing to have secure currency and accessible currency. They don't have to necessarily go together. Along those lines, we filed a a declaration speaking to the money reader. And while the money reader works for us when we are at home and we have plenty of time to use it, the money reader really does not provide the meaningful, timely access when we are in public in a line at a retail store. Uh, I use a guide dog. I also have a two-year-old son which means at times I have no hands. (laughs) Sometimes I wish I had one coming out my chest. Um, But it's pretty much a two-hand device. And while it's free, and most things that are free are okay, um, it, it does not provide the same level of access that accessible currency will provide us. Period, end of sentence. The government has been successful in filing for an extension for opposition. Uh, that will be, they will be uh, filing, I believe the deadline is August 12th. So stay tuned, there's more to come. Uh, finally, if I could, I'd, I'd like to just um, speak a little bit about ACB and our visibility to the rest of the blind community and to the, to the sighted community. We have made tremendous progress over the last year in social media, in particular, uh, Facebook and Twitter. We put out a video a couple of days ago. It was uh, scenes from the first day of the convention, which, by the way, you all, if you haven't met him, Dennis Becker, who is our videographer and photographer, he's a great guy. And one of the reasons why he's so great is that he's married to Nancy Becker. go up and say hi, but he put out this video. This video has been seen by like close to 4,000 people in just a little over two days. Which, yes, please. We are still behind the curve with regard to social media. We have a long way to go, but we have made tremendous progress, guys, uh, in the visibility that, that we're getting over social media, but also elsewhere. The blind ability video that we premiered last year received thousands and thousands of views and even more views than we know of because companies were using it internally as part of their intranet and as part of training. 
companies like Microsoft, J.P. Morgan Chase, IBM, Sprint, Verizon, all used it. And then earlier this year, as uh, our president said Sunday night, the Spotlight On video, which is an adaptation of the blindability video. The, it was a four-minute segment of the 13-minute video. It's now available to all 350-some PBS affiliates around the country. And it's going to be, at least for the next year, available for them to show. It's awesome. This is awesome. My goal is for this to just continue. I'd like to thank J.P. Morgan Chase for their continued support and underwriting of, of the Spotlight On video. We're doing really good things in this organization. I know that you've heard that. What we're getting better at is telling the world about the really good things that we're doing within ACB. I'm so excited to work for this organization, to uh, be able to meet with all of you, speak with all of you. Uh, this is only Wednesday. I'm exhausted, but life is good. Life is really good. Thank you so much for coming to Minneapolis. Thank you so much for taking time away from work. Thank you so much for the amount of money that you are spending to be here, just in food and airfare and, and everything else that you're buying in the exhibit hall. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And please have a great rest of your convention. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Eric. Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take some announcements, and the first person I'm going to recognize is Janet Dickelman. Uh, so if you have, let, I, we, we know these announcements are important, fundraisers and so forth, but um, we also don't want to keep people from their luncheons and other things. So let's kind of limit it as much as we can. Um, so Janet's going to be first, and then if we, if we have a few others, we can take those. Then I'm going to close, and then we'll finish up with a couple of door prizes. Does that sound good? Okay, so Janet Dickelman, are you at a microphone? I am. Go ahead, ma'am. Okay, reminder, exhibit hall closes today at 1 o'clock, so get your purchases in. We have a backpack found in the, at the GDB breakfast uh, that belongs to Lolly Lajewski, if she is at the convention. Uh, we also have a silver Braille watch that was found in the ACB cafe. If it's yours, stop by the information desk. Uh, reminder, our... Google presentations this afternoon in Lake Superior B, um, and the Sprint presentations by invitation only in Grant, J.P. Morgan Chase by invitation only going on in Lake Harriet today, and also Thursday, Friday in Minnehaha, and that in banquet tables, stop by the information desk if you haven't already reserved yours, and if you were on the tour for the Twins game yesterday, and have not want to redeem your ticket, pick up your ticket at registration. Thank you. Mr. Thank you, Chairman. Janet. Mr. Okay. Chairman. Madam okay, President. I hear a person who's calling. Mr. President. Um, I heard another person before. I hear Jeff Tom. Why don't you go well, ahead, Jeff? Uh, um, very quick announcement. Uh, AAVL is selling tickets, $175 and $50. The drawing is uh, this afternoon at 4. Sue Wesley, our treasurer, is at the ACB Cafe and will be happy to sell you 
as many tickets as you want, dollar apiece and six for five. Thank you. Okay. Mr. Chairman. Mr. President, I, I hear a, another person. I hear a Mr. Wilma. Chairman. Go Wilma. ahead, sir. No, ma'am. Identify yourself, please, first. W Wilma Chester. Wilma, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me? No, go ahead. Okay. I have a tactile Braille American flag that I am raffling off for camp abilities. It's a sports camp for visually impaired children, and we will have our first one in St. Louis this year in August. And I am raffling this flag off. Uh, one ticket for $1 and six tickets for $5. I will be at the Missouri table tomorrow and Friday. Thank you, Wilma. Thank Mr. you. Chairman. Any other, Mr. Um, Chair. Mr. Chairman. Okay, Frank I hear... Frank Mr. Think Chairman, Frank Chris Frank Gray. I hear, I think I heard Frank first. Yes. Okay, I'll go Frank first and then you, Chris. So, Frank, go ahead. Okay, two quick things. First, I, am, I still have a few radios and neck wallets for sale. Also, I have a baseball ticket in my hot little hand. If somebody wants to go to this afternoon's ball game, I will be in the California delegation for just a few more minutes. So, take it or leave it. Excellent. Chris? Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. The Missouri delegation would like you to come by and visit us. We're selling chances for a 10-day Mexican cruise. The uh, raffle will be held at our 60th annual convention in October. The ticket price is uh, $50. Mr. Chair? Okay. Um, okay. Or call me directly in my room, and I'll get with you and get you a ticket that way. Thank you. Okay. Mr. I heard Chair? A, I hear a woman. Go ahead. Identify yourself, please. This is Betsy from Georgia. Okay, Betsy. We have a sad announcement to make. For those who knew William Holly, he passed away during a procedure this past Friday. Oh. He was our past president. He was a district governor in the Lions Club in Georgia as well. Wow. Sorry, certainly sorry to hear that. Are there any others? Okay, I'm going to close, and then we'll take a couple door prizes. Ladies and gentlemen, it is an honor to have had the opportunity to preside for this morning. Um, I must say, I'm going to turn an old saying around. I'm going to say the more things stay the same, the more they change. I'm wearing the same suit that I wore last year. I did get it cleaned. Uh, but... It fits a little tighter this year. I think that's because I'm working at Sears Tower. There's a lot of good eating around. And unfortunately, Leslie, I'm not working out as much as I should be. So i got to change that and make this suit fit a little looser. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for the opportunity to preside this morning. It's been a true honor. The Door Prize people, take it away. Thank you very much. Okay. Let me just get this computer to behave. Okay, we're going to go ahead and break, and we're going to run the agenda for tomorrow, and then we're going to sign off, and we'll get the replay of the general session up here momentarily. And then i got to run off and coordinate some recordings of uh, some good programs we've got this afternoon that we'll try to get up on ACB Radio later tonight. And then we'll be back live streaming on uh, live event for the uh, healthcare issues uh, workshop which will commence around 2.45 Central Time this afternoon. All right. So with that, so long for now. Here is the agenda for Thursday, July 7th. In the Nicollet Ballroom, beginning at 8 a.m., Entertainment, Bruce Cottrell, Piano. Brunsville, Minnesota. 8.30 a.m., Invocation, Sharon Strakowski, Worcester, Massachusetts, Pledge of Allegiance, 2016 DKM first-timers, Marja Byers, Salem, Oregon, and Greg Lindbergh, 
Palm Harbor, Florida. 8.35 a.m. ACB Business. ACB Sponsor Recognitions, Marjorie Beeman Advertising and Sponsorship Coordinator, Austin, Texas. Constitution and Bylaws, John Huffman, Chair, Indianapolis, Indiana. Resolutions, Mark Reichert, Chair, Arlington, Virginia. Presiding Officer, Carla Rushable, ACB Treasurer, Louisville, Kentucky. 9.15 a.m. Meet the new President and CEO of the American Printing House for the Blind, Craig Meter, President and CEO, Louisville, Kentucky. 9.40 a.m., Pedestrian Safety Developments and Trends That You Can't Even Imagine, Research and Reality, Lucas Frank. Senior Consultant for Special Projects, The Seeing, 10.15 a.m. break, 10.30 a.m., Report on the ACB Walk and Auction, Dan Spoon, ACB Board of Directors, Orlando, Florida. Dan Dillon, Hermitage, Tennessee, co-chairs ACB Resource Development Committee. Donna Brown, Walk Chair, Romney, West Virginia, and Leslie Spoon, Chair, ACB Auction Subcommittee, Orlando, Florida. 11 a.m., National Conference and Convention Report, Janet Dickelman, Chair, Convention Committee, St. Paul, Minnesota. 11.15 a.m., Treasurer's Report, Carla Rushable, Louisville, Kentucky. 11.25 a.m., ACBES Report, Reverend Michael Garrett, Chair, ACB Enterprises and Services, Missouri City, Texas. 11.35 a.m., Award Presentations and Update from the ACB Audio Description Project, Joel Schneider, Director, Audio Description Project, Tacoma Park, Maryland. Chris Gray, ADP Awards Chair, St. Louis, Missouri. And Dan Spoon, Chair, Audio Description Project Steering Committee, Orlando, Florida. 11.55 a.m. Announcements, and that concludes the schedule for Thursday. Thursday, July 7th.